This is Jocko Podcast number 331 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Also joining us for the back-to-back episodes, Ben Milligan, author of the book, By Water Beneath the Walls. If you haven't listened to Podcast 330, go back and listen to that one. If you really want to start at the beginning of the Ben Milligan experience, then you got to go back and listen to 298. Ben Milligan, a former SEAL teammate of mine who has written this incredible book about, about the history of special operations and how from this convoluted, contorted history, there ends up being this random group of men from the Navy that become the go-anywhere commando of choice for the military. So, there you go. Ben. Well said. Thanks thanks for coming back, man. (laughs) Said better than I could. Uh, So, we got barely in three hours on the last podcast. We got through World War II in, in this convoluted, crazy story of hits and misses of surfaces and gaps. And we're going to roll into now the post-war period. Post-war, Korea. When I was writing the book, I, I, I really didn't want to uh, have a book that was half World War II and half everything else, but it's kind of how, <laughs> how it ended up. And I mean, now we just end up with a, with a podcast that's half World War II and then half well, everything else. I mean, you, how, how can you not, though? Like, yeah. when I was thinking about it, like, I, I cover... Uh, six chapters on uh, World War Two, and then there's uh, nine chapters of everything else. But you know, a third of the book is you know World War Two, and you know, justifiably so. And mm-hmm. World War Two is you know dwarfs everything else that we've ever you know most horrible war in history. And you know, in my World War Two section, it covers you know six different theaters of operation. So I mean, it makes sense that it would. So I don't feel as bad about it when I set out. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right, so let's jump into Chapter 7, which is the U.S. Navy's post-war plight and the sailor raiders who led her back to significance in Korea. (laughs) Good title. Yeah, we'll continue. You can see we continue, uh, Ben, with his (laughs) long-winded chapter titles. So those aren't even subtitles, right? No, that's, that's the actual chapter title. No, each chapter title is the cha- is a chapter one. That's the chapter title. And then the subtitle is that. Yeah, because uh, this chapter could have been called Chapter 7, Post-War. In my defense, I had much tighter chapter titles until my editor got a hold of these. Uh, I like I like how you're taking ownership of that. I like how you're blaming your editor. No, you're right. It is it is the other person's fault. You're right. It is. I happen to like my chapter titles, and for some of these, I spend more time writing the chapter titles. You imagine trying to compress thirty years of uh, you know a chapter into you know a single sentence. Like you're just, I mean, you're doing the absolute best that you can to like, one, give your, your reader some idea of what's about to, you know, what they're about to, you know, undertake. But two, you don't want to give away anything. Mm-hmm. You don't want to say like, I mean, I think the only chapter that I really give away, you know, uh, I, I sort of, I give you, you know, some foreshadowing, you know, the, uh, the raid that wasn't, which is the, the chapter on the, the Rangers, you have some sense that this isn't going to go the way that they think it's going to go. And then two, uh, the, um, the the the, uh, the first chapter on the raiders, you know the 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 rise and the, the violent demise right. of the, the navy's first raiders. You want, you know, you're you're kind of, 
you're, you're giving your reader like a little taste of what's about to come. Mm-hmm. The, I, I know I can be a little bit of a, of a, what is it? A dart thrower from the back of the room about your, about your titles and stuff. But uh, yes. as, yeah. as I said, and uh, this book is phenomenal. This book is, is when I, when I read through this book, um, look, the detail is amazing, but you're a freaking hell of a writer too. It's funny. There's the, the things that you capture, the things that you call out, the dialogue that you've selected. And what's cool is the dialogue that you've selected. This is dialogue that's documented. This isn't like your, uh, authors. You don't do that anywhere in the, you don't do anywhere in the book. Do you do the, you know, this is basically what was said. You don't do that anywhere, do you? It's no. all, this is what was actually said, recorded in this document. There's only one time where I, I try to synthesize a conversation. I think uh, that's when I have two different, I had two documents. Uh, one was Donovan's account of a conversation uh, and then Miles' account of a conversation. And they both you know, are sort of like <laughs> confirming what the other said. Um, that's the only time where I tried to synthesize, you know, two separate conversations. Or there was another time when I was synthesizing, you know, the conversation that uh, um, Hal and Mad Smith has with Kelly Turner about Tinian. And then there's a third um, uh, uh, account where uh, Draper Kaufman is listening in on this conversation. I'm trying to, like, do my best to, like, squeeze these three things into triangulate the different <laughs> perspectives and try and come up with something that's close to what They essentially, yeah. like, agree with each other, though. I mean, it's like, you know... Uh, uh, you kind of know when something's true when it doesn't exactly agree. Like mm-hmm. if, uh, you know, if you're a platoon commander and, uh, you know, two of your guys uh, show up for an op and they both have black eyes and you're like, what happened last night? And if they both have the exact same story, you know they're lying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So if there's a slight, if there's, you know, if they both kind of rhyme with each other but they're not exactly yeah. the same, they were just told from a different perspective. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's an unbelievable book. It's a fantastic read, and it's the kind of book also you can kind of pick up. This is this is sort of in the vein of about face, where in about face you can pick up that book and you can start to read it, and in four pages, three pages, you go, oh, that's a good little lesson. There's something to think about, and this is this this is the same way that this book works. Uh, yes, absolutely, you read it from cover to cover, but you have it sitting on your you know on your on your nightstand. And you're not quite tired yet. Open this book up anywhere. Read three or four pages, and you get a little lesson, a little piece of history, and also some kind of a leadership lesson in there. So phenomenal from that perspective as well. Um, all right, let's jump into this a little bit. So tell me more about the revolt of the admirals. What happened with that? So after World War II, uh, the uh, the Joint Chiefs, or there's a there's a huge budget, you know, cut. I mean, there's nothing's ever happened like World War Two, um, and World War Two, like nothing's ever happened like the end of World War Two, where you know the military, you know, the the U.S. military prior to World War Two has always had this um, uh, sort of cycle where they 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 build up to deal with a, with whatever conflict, whether it was the American Civil War or uh, the First World War or the Second World War. They, they grew from sort of a nucleus force to this massive industrial, you know, um, mobilized, you know, military. And then after it, you shrink back down to that nucleus force again so you can rebuild uh, again later. After World War II, um, 
the U.S. military or the 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 U.S. public has finally learned its lesson. We can't uh, shrink back. You, you can't um, uh, be in this industrial or this uh, era of total war and not uh, field planes and, and massive ships. You have to keep a residual um, uh, force uh, afloat and in the air. Uh, but there's still you can't continue to spend what they were spending in World War II. So you know, the military shrinks drastically. So all of the military um, uh, entities are competing for very limited resources. Uh, but now that uh, all of the you know world's or all of the, the uh, United States' enemies have been defeated, um, uh, the the one that still exists is the Soviet Union, and uh, planners don't expect that this is going to be a massive uh, naval effort. Uh, the Soviet Union at that point doesn't have a you know a, a particularly big navy or anything like that. We don't anticipate that we're ever going to need to uh, land ships uh, in the Soviet or land troops on the Soviet Union because we have this you know uh, huge um, uh, presence in in Western Europe. So. Uh, uh, planners in the Army and the Air Force are, are claiming that they need more of the resources, that the Navy doesn't need resources because we're never going to have amphibious warfare again. Um, it's just just not going to happen. Anything that the Navy could have done, all the, all the troops that the Navy could have transported, the Air Force can do it with planes. Um, or we're already ashore anyway. So uh, take the money from uh, the Navy, uh, give it to the Army, give it to especially give it to the Air Force. So the Air Force and the and the Army um, have convinced uh, you know the, most of the, uh, the the top decision makers um, in the Truman administration uh, that they're going to you know pull money you know rob from Peter to pay Paul. Well, the Navy. Um, sees this prospect of what uh, is about to be done to them, about to be done to their service. And not only are they about to lose all of this money uh, and all of this status, but they're about to be sort of declawed. You know, the Navy's not going to be like a force, an offensive warfare force anymore. Um, and the Navy, Navy planners are, you know, they're, they're, they're panicking. You know, not, not just panicking for their, their service, but they realize how, um, how difficult, how complex expeditionary warfare is, and they're doing everything they can to uh, save their service, and by saving the service, save the country. Um, so uh, they stage, essentially, stage a coup. They, uh, um, not, a, not, a, not a coup, but they, uh, it, the, 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 they start um, uh, uh, leaking uh, pressure, or leaking stuff to, to newspaper uh, columnists, um, I, I talked about Merritt, uh, Merritt Edson, Red Mike Edson. He, he uh, resigns from his uh, uh, commission in the Marine Corps so he can get out and start protesting publicly. Uh, eventually, uh, the clamor gets so bad that they have to call uh, a committee hearing uh, in the House in, in Congress. Um, and it's you know for several days, uh, it's a it's a big to do. Like uh, they they bring in just about every admiral, uh, every every famous admiral from World War II to to testify in front of Congress. Yeah, I got a, I got a list of names here: uh, Le- Leahy, Blandy, Nimitz, Halsey, Spruance, Kincaid, Connolly, Carney, Burke. Every Blue Water hero, save Kelly Turner, uh, <laughs> save Kelly Turner, Farragut, and John Paul Jones. Um, <laughs> That that is just basically everyone you could every pipe hitting naval leader goes in and uh, makes their case makes their case for not taking all the money away from the navy and giving it all to the army and primarily the air force. 
no other force and no other nation, Denfield proclaimed, could concentrate aircraft like the Navy, could seize advanced bases, could defend those bases, could promulgate underseas and amphibious warfare, could bring to bear its underwater demolition teams, its minesweepers, and its radio telephone operators to control air and naval gunfire. At the conclusion of Denfield's testimony, a red-faced, speechless Matthews stood and thundered from the committee room. For a moment, it appeared the Navy had won. Interesting, they even mentioned the underwater demolition teams. That's I mean, they're so um, uh, I mean, important in the Navy's order of battle at that point that absolutely they're going. And you know, they grew, like I you know, say in the book, they grew from three teams to 40 teams. And each of these teams is a hundred as a hundred guys, uh, plus uh, each one is assigned its own ship. And not only that, but they have an, a, a, a assorted um, uh, all, all the all the protection that each one of these teams uh, requires. Uh, almost each one gets an LCIG gunboat, plus all the battleships that that came with that. I mean, the the UDTs have risen to the front rank of uh, the Navy's amphibious warfare plan. So, but it fails. The whole revolt fails. And that's that. Yeah, sort of. I mean, it's that until we go, until uh, a completely unexpected event happens. The North Koreans invade the South. That's what we always need to be ready for, that right. unexpected event. The unexpected event. That no one, no one anticipates. One of the things that we've been doing as we've been going through this book uh, the second time here is talk about some of the characters that you were forced to cut out because of just the prudence and 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 uh, sympathy for your reader is what you'd there like you to tell me. Sympathy for the reader because you would you could literally make every one of these characters its own book. So, tell me about Lewis A. Johnson. Lewis A. Johnson is, I mean, he's he's a villain out of central casting. He's, <laughs> I mean, he's a total politician. He's, a, um, I think he's a West. He's a, yeah, I know he is. He's a West Virginia attorney. He's a. Um, Truman's campaign director uh, in his second campaign for office. Uh, his reward uh, for uh, uh, getting to Truman a second term is uh, he becomes the uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, a position he's um, not particularly suited for. He doesn't have a, a huge military record. He, he did serve in the First World War. I think he was a supply officer. Um, one of the things he did, one of the la- last things he did when he was still on active duty as an as a na- na- army supply officer is he issued a Fairly, uh, fairly scathing report of uh, the, the, the sort of the army's logistics efforts. He's always kind of been um, not a, not an outsider, but sort of a, a you know like the guy with the flamethrower. He just he does not like the institution that he was a part of. He thinks it could be run so much better. And when he sees the um, the U.S. military, he sees redundancies everywhere. Not just redundancies, but waste, waste, waste. He wants to get rid of all of it. He wants to come in, like I said, with a blowtorch, and he wants to. He stops uh, production of a, an aircraft carrier while it's. I mean, after its keel has already been laid, he's taking money from the Navy and giving it right to the Air Force. Almost four hundred million dollars in, in one fell swoop from the Navy to the to the Air Force. Um, he is, I, I say, he's a person who never saw an arm without thinking how to twist it. <laughs> One of my favorite lines from the book. Like he was, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's the he's the uh, I call it, he's the 
he's the he's the villain of the navy he's the he's the antagonist he's uh he's the guy who sees you know the navy is just a you know a waste of manpower a waste of resources the air force can do everything particularly with with uh, atomic weapons nobody else has them there's no more war this is the end of history for a lot of people they mm-hmm. think everything's we're 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 done perpetual peace you know it's uh when i first got into the navy when i was a kid I remember at some point, you know, I got to the team because in buds you're still in boot camp, and then buds you're still kind of like isolated to what the navy actually is and how it actually works, right? I remember going on my first trip in, at the SEAL teams, and for some reason we had to like get gas for our vehicles, and we had to pay for the gas from the navy like uh, supply depot thing. We had a special card. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you you think you think just like, hey man, it's the Navy, like they got gas, it's Navy gas, like we're in the Navy, they're in the Navy, hey, cool. Or, oh, we need to fly to some other state, cool. Well, the Air Force is going to pick us up, and then we don't have to pay for that. They're in the Air Force, we're in the Navy, but we're all on the same big team. And you realize it's not like that at all, and that's why these budgetary discussions that happen they're so you wouldn't think that they would be a thing but they're they're the thing it's not just that they're a thing they are the thing and the way this money gets divvied up and luckily luckily it ends up being a it for the most part a positive sort of competitive cycle of people trying to do good so that they can get more money which drives better results right uh but but when you talk about efficiency, like if you were to look at the military just straight up from a pure efficiency, why does the army have boats? Why does the army have helicopters? Why does the Navy have helicopters? Why does the Marine Corps have fighter jets? Why You could just say, well, it doesn't make any sense at all. This is all redundant. If you're going to have one group in charge of the sky, make it the Air Force. You make one group in charge of the ocean, make it the, make it the Navy. Got one group in charge of the land, make it the Army. There's all kinds of efficiencies that you could kind of think and say, yeah, that makes some sense. But the reality is there's these seams and the seams need to be dealt with. And and then you, you want to have, in a positive way, you want to have the Marine Corps that has fighter jets and the Navy has fighter jets and the Air Force has fighter jets. And the Army, well, they have A-10s. So close, but <laughs> you see what I'm saying? But they all have no. I mean, you're uh, right. Bradley fighting vehicles and and you know armored vehicles. Well, what about the army has them? But so does the Marine Corps. And you you just go down these lists of where these things cross over, where the efficiencies are. And so this battle that we're talking about, that's a that's a economic battle for the various forces, is a real thing that needs to be contended with. And and that's sort of another thing as we go forward. That's going to continue to drive the seals to be coming to get created, because as you know, you mentioned, oh, it seems like World War II was sort of the end of war for some people. Well, if you want to talk about naval battles, Navy versus Navy, it gets pretty close to saying that World War II is the end of war. Right. It does for, for the Navy. Mm-hmm. And so then what's the Navy doing? Well, we still got aircraft. Okay, that's cool. But that still is one step back 
from the people that are on the front lines making things happen. So I just wanted to bring that up from the perspective of where this all goes and how this all plays out. Uh, Ted Fielding. Let's deal with Ted Fielding. Ted Fielding, Mac Boynton, George Atchison, these are all characters uh, that are UDT uh, officers who are are almost lost to history. Um, they are uh, that first rank of, uh, uh, of frogmen that um, started the, it, I kind of got to go back real quick. So when Korea kicks off, um, Korea, the geography of Korea, you know, determines a lot. Uh, the um, the ge- Korea is uh, it's a peninsula. Um, it's accessible, you know, everywhere, you know, on every every coast of it, you know, by you know naval guns, uh, navy ships. Um, but the the mountains of Korea uh, kind of preclude, you know, the um, uh, the highways being, you know, driven or built right down the center of the country. So most of the highways in Korea, most of the railroads in Korea, all like all major uh, traffic is going to go up and down the skins of the country. So on either coast, you know, within 15 miles of the coast, um, the the major arteries uh, of the country are going to be, you know, established. So um, when the Inmingun or where the North Korean army, when they attack, they, they, they push uh, the South Korean military and the, and the U.S. advisors, they push them into this little pocket, you know, down to the far southeast corner of the country, what we call the Pusan perimeter. And the North Koreans are supplying uh, their forces that are attacking this perimeter, you know, uh, up and down these railways that are, uh, you know, uh, on, the, on the flanks of the coast or on the flanks of the uh, peninsula. So... The U.S. military, having disbanded the Army Rangers, having disbanded the Army Ra- or the Marine Corps Raiders, the Marine Back Recon Company, all of these special operations units that had been created in World War II, none of these units exist. Uh, and all commanders want is to start fielding something that can help cut these supply lines uh, to the uh, North Korean Army. And the first uh, entity... Uh, to see the opportunity there and to see, you know, the, the good that they can be doing on that uh, are the, the commanders in the U.S. Navy. They see these, but they don't have the troops to do it. And the only troops that are in country uh, that they have are their frogmen, the underwater demolition teams. And they've never done any missions like this. They've never gone ashore. The, the furthest the UDTs have gone ashore uh, are in Okinawa. A couple of guys went inland uh, to do a, a handful of things, but nothing serious. So when we get to Korea... Uh, because there, you know, there are no raiders, there are no rangers. There are uh, the recon, uh, the marine recon are still on their way to the country. Um, the opportunity falls to the only unit that's that's there, and that's a detachment of UDT frogmen. And they figure it out. Uh, they start going ashore, and they start uh, they they do their they they find these railways, and they try to uh, blow them up with. The, I mean, the, well, the one thing that the UDT has is a ton of explosives. <laughs> We got some bombs. We got some boy. bombs. We, we, I mean, they. Uh, I think the first raid uh, that they they actually uh, undertake is in Yosu, and it's by George Atchison, who's, um, uh, he's a relatively uh, new frogman. He's not. He he wasn't a, uh, a frogman in World War Two, um, but he's a uh, he he's he, um, He's become a really good problem solver in his you know, four-year career in the UDTs. Uh, he's one of the one of the 
first guys to participate in what's called the sub ops um, uh, platoon. He he's he's started to instead of being just the the, the frogman who's swimming on the surface, he's uh, he's perfected uh, uh, lockouts from submarines. Um, he's he's driven underwater submersibles. So he he is may, he might not be a raider or might not be uh, somebody who's trained in you know inland uh, demolition raids, but he is somebody who's adaptable. And he leads one of the first raids uh, ashore to, to blow up a railway, a rail railway. And those subsequent guys that come in, Fielding, Boynton, they they only take the UDTs even further. I'm going to take it to the book on that one. Uh, Below the seawall and out of Atchison's view, Foley had likewise heard the hand cart and was already splashing into the surf, his legs and arms straining against the slow motion of sucking water and the bad dream unfolding behind him. When he reached the rubber boat, he gave a a hushed alarm to the crew, grabbed the Tommy gun, and splashed back through the surf, swimmers Limey, Austin, and McCormick waiting, uh, waiting behind to keep up. Under the bridge, Atchison held his breath, waiting for an opportunity. Suddenly, a shadowy figure breasted the seawall and charged the tunnel, firing a machine gun from the hip. Instinctively, both the North Koreans and Atchison opened fire at the same target, apparently just in time to hear the figure yelling, Hang in there, LT, I'm coming. It was Foley. Whether or not Atchison realized his mistake, the flash of gunfire unfroze him. Grenade in hand, he pulled the pin and threw it toward the North Koreans. Then he threw another and another. The sequence of explosions, all of unknown origin, chased the North Koreans back into the tunnel. Glimpsing his moment, Atchison tore himself from cover and sprinted to the seawall. As soon as he reached the top of the wall, one of the armed swimmers huddled at the bottom, spotted a human head poking over the lip, and made the same mistake Atchison had had and stitched the wall with fire. One of the rounds tore a hole in the bill of Atchison's hat. Half a second later, Atchison identified himself. You idiots, hold your fire, it's me. And poked his head over again, then scraped down the wall and onto the rocks. At the bottom, he found the rest of his men. Having rolled himself away from danger and over the seawall, Foley was now alert, but gritting his teeth, shot through the hand and thigh, a kneecap smashed by his fall. Once they were together, McCormick scooped up Foley in his arms and everyone ran for the surf. That medium, that, until this mission, the UDT had always considered the furthest limit of their operations. So that's it. That's the first venture out of the surf zone and onto the land. Foley goes home. Foley goes to. Uh, 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 he he's um, he, uh, the the movie The Frogman mm-hmm. uh, comes out uh, a few months later, and uh, Foley, who's recently returned from Korea, uh, he goes to the premiere. He's wheeled up in a in a wheelchair. And he gets to meet you know Richard Wig- Woodmark, who's the um, the. Uh, the the star of the show and everything like that is pretty cool. Uh, that's one of the few things like um, yeah, I, that would have been a totally missed uh, uh, episode had I not gone to the UDTCO museum. That's mm-hmm. one of the, like I'm walking through that thing. I think I know everything, and I walk past a, a picture of Richard Woodmark and Foley. Like, <laughs> damn, dude. Yeah, they cool. kind of did a good job on the Frog Man. They really movie. did. Yeah, they oh, on the Frog. Yeah, the movie. Yeah, yeah I mean, they they, ca- they catch you some good attitudes, yeah. right? You're like, oh, I know these guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, the kind of 
first opening 10 minutes where you're catching the the attitude of these UDT guys, yeah. you're like, oh, I recognize this attitude. Yep. I freaking had to hang out with these idiots my whole life. Yep. <laughs> They're really cocky. They're yep. just getting after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do a good job with that. So then after you, you say that Fielding now and Boynton, they start pushing in and continue to push it doesn't these happen, operations. Yeah, it doesn't happen like right away. So they, I mean, when, when the Marine recon gets in country, uh, the Marine, uh, they, they create this unit special op, uh, operations group or SOG. Uh, and it's, a, it's another one of those um, sort of entities where the Marines take the front rank of it and the UDT take the subordinate role of just being in charge of the explosives. So the Marines are going to go ashore. Uh, they're going to, um, you know, with, with guns and everything like that, they're going to clear uh, or uh, provide a perimeter for the UDT to come ashore with explosives, set those explosives onto the railways, and then they escape toward it. Now, they, they have uh, a couple of these that sort of that, that go sideways. Um, uh, a couple of uh, Marines are, are wounded uh, badly, one's paralyzed. On the last of these raids, um, uh, a force of uh, frogmen have to uh, paddle back into shore to rescue their marine uh, comrades. Uh, I think eight of them are uh, hanging out in the water, uh, uh, in water up to their necks because they can't swim. The, the UTs have to, uh, they uh, hand them straps on the boats and they just pull them out back out to sea. Uh, but that, but that, it doesn't stop there. So they, this, this sort of system, uh, the, the SOG is broken apart not long after. I think they have a three-week um, operational, um, you know, lifespan. Wait, uh, this the SOG, the Special Operations Group there yeah. in, in Korea, has oh. a three-week operational career. Yeah, uh, it takes it. It takes it from uh, all the way up to uh, September, uh, right, uh, right uh, when the the Incheon. Um, invasion happens once after Incheon. You know that uh, the imperative to cut the supply lines isn't it doesn't exist anymore because we've cut the enemy in half. So once uh, once we take Incheon, uh, the the North Korean um, uh, siege of the Pusan perimeter falls apart. So that's not to say that uh, UDTs are no longer involved in, in raids for the rest of the war. What I found the the point of the whole chapter was n- less about the UDTs and more about uh, the Navy's um, uh, preoccupation with uh, f- uh, partnering with any force that would uh, be able to provide them raiders. So they partner with the, uh, they, they, they create SOG, uh, they partner with Korean partisans, uh, they um, convince the Army to release uh, the, uh, the, the, Marine, the, the Royal Marine Commandos, the 4-1 four, Commando, uh, they, they, they essentially steal uh, the Royal Marines away from the Army. They're supposed to go uh, serve with the Army. Uh, Admiral Burke, who's the chief of staff under Turner Joy, he convinces the Army to let him go uh, and creates a one undersea raiding force uh, attached to uh, the USS Perch. Uh, but he also um, just creates a, a, a raiding force to partner with his UDT. So at every point, um, all these entities are... Uh, they, they they partner with the U.S. Navy to you know, create coastal raiders. And at different points, these all these units get plucked away, plucked away, pulled away for various reasons. But the Navy, um, sort of in, a, in telegraphing its interest, its intent, um, its desire for its own raiding force, as soon as these groups are pulled away, they partner with another one, partner with this one. They some I mean at every point, and always sort of the um, the common denominator. In that process are the UDTs. 
UDTs never really become like the, the, the they don't become SEALs. Um, in fact, there are guys like Doug Fain, um, uh, who wrote, writes the book Naked Warrior. Uh, he, his position is that, you know, the UDT's future is under the water. We're going, I mean, we, uh, he has no interest in inland combat. And uh, the, the contemporaneous documents that I found, I mean, several of them are saying that, you know, the several uh, naval officers um, are writing that UDTs, the UDT uh, chain of command, really does not like doing this. Doesn't, we, I mean, the UDTs would much uh, rather stick to the water. They've only done this as, uh, as an exigency, and we shouldn't rely on the UDTs uh, as, a, as an inland raiding force. We need to create something different. So all the way back in 1953, you can see some reluctance by the UDT, whereas the Navy is sort of pushing the UDT into this because the UDT or the Navy realizes there's some real strategic potential here and having a force that can do, that can project this raiding uh, power from the sea. One of the other forces that we see surfacing to fill this gap again um, is talked about in Chapter 8. This is the resurrection of the Army's Rangers and the guerrilla raid that failed to forestall their second death. I'm gonna go to the book here. <clears throat> On November 21, Puckett's, Puckett or Phuket? Phuket? Rough Puckett. Puckett. On November 21, Puckett's Rangers were loaned to Task Force Dolvin, two battalions of mostly tanks and reconnaissance troops intended to range ahead of the rest of the division. For a unit whose motto in the last war was Rangers lead the way, the promotion from rear guard to skirmishers was an improvement, but still not what had been intended. On November 24th at 2 p.m., machine gun fire forced the Rangers off their tanks and into the scrub. From the Valley 4 Pucket led a daytime attack to season hold Hill 224, during which one Ranger was mortally wounded. In the chaos, T.F. Dolvin's tanks fired on Puckett's men, killing two and wounding six. The next day, during T.F. Dolvin's phased movement north, enemy fire again opened up on the column, this time from behind. Realizing they were suddenly surrounded, the Rangers bundled off the tanks into the middle of a frozen rice paddy and sprinted uphill 205. Enemy fire wounded three more Rangers and convinced one of Puckett's two platoon commanders to desert the company and hide behind and hide in the valley command post. As darkness fell, the Rangers clawed out frozen fox hill holes amid the hill's em- emaciated pine trees, and Puckett scratched down an artillery support plan. His roster numbered 58 souls. At around 10 p.m., the sound of drums, whistles, and bugles rattled the night silence. A moment later, a cascade of sparks crackled forth from the slope below, followed by the hard thud of mortars and grenades, then a wave of attackers in tan, winter-padded uniforms. The fight that followed was not one the Rangers had been promised. Under the ghostly loom of waning red flares, the men fought from the lips of foxholes like trench soldiers, relying on artillery to splash their slope clean. As with rising tides, every wave inched closer and eroded a bit more. Bullets, grenades, courage, men. After five hours and five waves, no ranger had more than a few rounds left. 
Any man who had not already done so fixed his bayonet. Then came the sixth wave. Shot through the chest with shrapnel in his shoulder, Puckett ducked into the bottom of his foxhole, wrapped white knuckles around his radio handset, cupped the receiver close to his mouth, and begged for another salvo of artillery. The response, get in line. A half second after Puckett's last transmission, two mortar shells exploded next to him, killing his remaining West Point classmate and peppering holes from his feet to his shoulders. When he woke up, he laughed. There was nothing else to do. All around, Puckett's men either snaked down the hill or fought to the death. Holy Mary of goddamn this rifle, one Catholic ranger was heard to curse as he wrenched open his frozen bolt. The last report of Wilbur Clanton, one of the U.S. Army, Army's first black rangers, was the unmistakable sound of him roaring in rage as he charged a cluster of enemy troops with an empty rifle. He was never seen again. Three privates first class nearly made it to the valley floor when they were stopped, not by the enemy, but by the wind that fills their sails of bravery, their duty. Past looters and battlefield executioners, the three stalwarts crept over scrub and bodies until they found Puckett, alive but reeling on his hands and knees. As they dragged him away, he was heard muttering the same thing over and over. I'm a ranger. I'm a ranger. Months later, McGee would pen a letter to Puckett in the hospital commending him and the 8th Army Rangers for carrying forth the fullest interpretation of duty, honor, and country. This personal satisfaction of doing the job, concluded McGee, is the highest and often the only reward of a soldier. In the entire letter, McGee betrayed not a trace of bitterness at the Rangers' misuse. Of Puckett's 57 men who started the battle on Hill 205, 17 were wounded and 11 killed, their bodies destined for the same fate as those at Cisterna. The enemy was estimated to have numbered around 600, and they were not North Koreans. With some 300,000 troops, China had entered the war. Ralph Puckett was just a, well, not just, but um, a year ago, two years ago, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. His Distinguished Service Cross was upgraded. Upgraded. I've always wondered what happened uh, to the three that, that rescued him, if they were appropriately honored. That's no small thing to creep back up that hill with the no. uh, the Chinese soldiers. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Uh, and is this the raid that that failed to forestall their second death? No, that's not. So this is uh, that's an example of kind of the army's um, misuse of the Rangers. So the again, eight, again, yeah, the Eighth Army Rangers are created in country. Uh, they're created. Um, by John McGee, who's uh, the central character of this book. He was a uh, prisoner of war. Uh, he, he fought at Bataan. Uh, he was a, a prisoner of war for uh, most of uh, World War II. He escapes, uh, and he tries, anyway, he, he 
tries to create a partisan force, fails to do that in World War II, but this is his second chance. And so uh, he is ordered to explore the idea of uh, creating a a partisan force at the beginning of the Korean War. He doesn't uh, find an opportunity there for uh, for that, but he does establish an idea for the the Rangers. At the same time he's doing this, the Army, back in the United States is also uh, getting the idea to to reconstitute uh, the Rangers. So there's sort of two parallel things that are happening. One, there's the 8th Army Rangers that uh, back uh, in uh, the United States, they're they're back at uh, uh, Fort Benning, they're recreating the the Ranger uh, company model. Uh, But nobody really up top is thinking about how to employ these Rangers and one, how to like create a command to, you know, make sure that the Rangers do Ranger missions. So once these Rangers are created, Unfortunately, all of these ranger companies get attached to divisions. Once the divisions have them, they don't really know what to do with them, so they just treat them like regular infantry. So they've been trained for you know these behind-the-lines raids. Only a couple of behind-the-lines raids happen. So what the only thing that could have really forestalled that second death would have been uh, a, a raid that showed the potential of these rangers. And the raid that could have done that, that almost succeeds, is the Virginia One raid, which is sort of a combination of um, uh, McGee's uh, partisan um, entities and his ranger entities. He creates this ranger-led partisan um, uh, mission uh, to sneak 25 miles behind uh, enemy lines to an to a inland uh, mountain tunnel to destroy that tunnel to cut the, the enemy's supply lines. And as you'll find in the book, it's, uh, it's a complete disaster. And was it? How was the research on that? Did you run into some issues with the research? Yeah, it was on a that? tough. It was a tough one to research. It was a. Um, I, I knew that this this was the raid that you know I knew that was uh, that I wanted to cover uh, in part because it did so many things. It did so much work for me. It combined, you know, these sort of two wings of the armies. Uh, uh, one, their um, their reconstitution of the Rangers, but also the army's um, you know interest in uh, partisan or guerrilla operations into a single mission. Uh, but I couldn't find a ton uh, on this. I, I had uh, communicated with uh, uh, a, f- a guy who had uh, formerly served with. With McGee and the Partisan Command, who'd written a um, uh, a book uh, on this uh, mission, uh, Ed Evanhoe. I talked to his son, got uh, notes that his dad had used to to write his book. Um, it wasn't until um, I was doing my research for uh, or research, um, or I, I came across a, a POW report for McGee. So McGee had been a POW in World War II, and I knew that. Uh, one of the members of the Virginia One Raid had also uh, uh, been a POW. So knowing these POW reports existed in the archives, I uh, did a FOIA request to see if there was a POW report of similar length uh, uh, for Martin Watson. Now, the POW report that I had for McGee was like two pages long. Um, I anticipated that I'd have a uh, two-page report for uh, Martin Watson as well. Uh, after waiting a couple of months, I finally got a, uh, an email back saying, yes, we have the report. Um, I was like, great, can you email me the copy of the report? It's like, no, it's in another report. It's about 750 pages long. I was like, well, can you just pull Martin Watson's section out? Well, they said, uh, no, it's 750 pages. I was like, okay, all right, clearly there's a miscommunication here. I'll get it the next time I'm in you know, Maryland. Next time I was in Maryland, 
I spent a whole day researching something else. I had moved on from the Virginia One raid. I was like, I'm, I'm never going to find anything on this. I'm going to have to recalibrate, come up with something else that, that shows what I'm trying to show. Um, end of the day, I was like, oh, yeah, there's that Martin Watson POW report. So I requested it. They you know, wheeled it out in the box. I opened the box. I pull it open. There's this huge binder. And I'm expecting to leaf through it and find the Martin Watson section of this POW report. When, in fact, every single page in this 750-page collection of papers is all about Martin Watson and the Virginia One raid. It, was, it wrote the chapter for me. It was, it, everything was there. So. Let me go to the book on Martin Watson because this guy's, well, he's Martin Watson. Raised in Hartford, Connecticut's Frog Hollow District by the competing lash stripes of an Irish Catholic diocese, a German grandmother, and local French bullies, Martin R. Watson, red-haired, fair-skinned, and small, had survived by learning the languages of each group, by building his body until his back was the size of a dinner table and his legs could not fit into store-bought swim trunks and by joining up with a gang of local Irish toughs who were destined for the usual options of East Coast Irish destiny, law enforcement or crime. With 75 arrests by the time he was 19, the last one requiring seven police officers to detain him, Watson's future would have undoubtedly been the latter if the Japanese had only stayed on their island. A member of Darby's 1st Ranger Battalion since North Africa, and thus a veteran, veteran of blazing heat, bitter cold, three amphibious landings, and more than a few mountaintop Alamos, Watson and his Echo Company platoon had been among the few groups to reach Cisterna's outer outskirts. There, with all hope lost, Watson, at just 21, had volunteered to stay behind to cover his squad's retreat, a sacrifice that resulted in humiliation in the streets of Rome, followed by 15 months at Stalag 2B, situated on the northeastern fringe of the Reich, and known all above, uh, known above all for its cruelties. Watson had responded to captivity by murdering the camp commandant's German shepherd and by attempting so many escapes that the guards had nicknamed him the Hase, German for rabbit. Upon liberation, Watson had vowed that he would never be a prisoner again. It was a promise his personality was only to keep for just five months, whereupon he was jailed for 30 days in East Hartford for inciting a riot and resisting arrest, crimes that preceded six more similar episodes, breach of peace, assault, intoxicated assault, and assault and battery of a police officer. <laughs> Sorry, man. I, this guy's a freaking maniac. For the last charge, Watson would have faced as much as nine months in jail had he not re-enlisted in the Army, then re-volunteered for the Rangers. At that interview for the Virginia One mission, McGee had seen in Watson a man physically distinct from the others. At six feet four, 240 pounds, a chin haped like a fist, hands the size of country hams, a reddish brown Cadillac mustache with ends as sharp as tomahawks. The real difference in Watson, however, had lain just below his eyebrows. A gaze so comfortable and confident that he looked 15 years older than his 27 years suggested. 
there was only one issue imposing experienced eager a preternatural fighter watson had ended world war ii with a rank of t5 technician fifth grade essentially a corporal in the five years since he had advanced not a single rank a fact that belied his leadership potential which was ample but spoke volumes about his exposure to a military leader's responsibilities from mission planning to command and control um yeah yeah as as you mentioned he ended up getting captured again he gets captured again he he um not, not before he manages to get all three of his uh, ranger comrades uh, safely evacuated. He uh, winds up um, uh, escaping from the mountaintop, uh, you know, Alamo that they fight their way off of. Uh, a Navy pilot had crashed, so it's him, a Navy pilot, and six uh, Korean partisans. And they are uh, making their way uh, something like 87 miles uh, to the coast. And they or not to the coast, uh, to friendly lines. And uh, the Navy pilot gets uh, captured. Uh, most of the Koreans uh, get captured. Only Watson gets captured, I think, uh, two miles from friendly lines, almost makes it. Uh, and the two uh, Koreans uh, that do make it back to friendly lines, uh, they um, ultimately are discovered that they had uh, only made it back uh, because they agreed to spy for the North Koreans and they are executed. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. On July 27th, 1953, the armistice that effectively ended the Korean War was signed, and within days, the Chinese and North Koreans began publishing daily lists of UN prisoners of war earmarked for release. For a printing press operator at the New York Times who received each list directly from the front, this initiated a a nightly series of breath-holding paper-clutching searches through line after line of names, not one of them belonging to his son, of whom he had no had had no information for two years, five months, and 26 days. So this is Watson's old man. Yeah. After 32 nights of this routine, and having recently been informed that only one more list of 110 names remained to be published, this father left his co-workers and his post behind and made for the Connecticut shore to be alone. There, hours later, he was found by local police and informed that the North Koreans had, at the last minute, added a 111th name to their final list, a name the local police knew all too well. In the 29 months since his capture, Corporal Martin R. Watson, a soldier no guard or prisoner believed was actually a corporal, had set an example for captivity that to this day has never been exceeded. 30 days after he was captured, for 18 of which he had been starved in a cave to make his 240-pound size somewhat easier to handle, Watson and a South Korean comrade had knocked out a guard with a rock and made for the surrounding mountains where they survived for five days until their pursuers had disabled them by rolling a grenade into their hideout. Never medically treated, except with some shreds of brown paper to cover his wounds, Watson had nevertheless escaped again, this time by wriggling out of his rope restraints and jumping free of a moving truck as it slowed around a bend. This time he survived a week before inadvertently walking right past a wide-eyed North Korean patrol. 
for these attempts and one other, plus an attempted suicide with a broken piece of glass. He had been relentlessly beaten with rifle butts and boot heels and periodically starved and almost always isolated, once in an unsheltered hole for 72 days with rations described by the record as sparse. Rightly suspected as an OSS spy and saboteur, Watson had also been subjected to almost daily interrogation by the North Koreans, the Chinese, even the Russians, who had drilled him on his exposure to the Gestapo in World War II, but especially on the organization's methods and tactics of the paratroop unit to which they knew he had belonged. Watson's, Watson's response to these and other questions had been a mixture of stony silence or intentional contradiction, responses that had invariably earned him a switch across the eyes, a pistol barrel across the face, or hours of kneeling with his nose pressed against a wall and a stone on his head. Throughout these deprivations, Watson never lost his bearing nor conviction. Once standing during a packed camp lecture by a British speaker from the London Daily Worker to say that he, quote, didn't know what communism was and didn't care to find out, end quote. Nor did he and his fellow POWs want to listen to this trainer, commie, son of a bitch. For this affront, And as his example to other prisoners, he was eventually frog-marched before a military tribunal, informed of the armistice, then sentenced to death by firing squad. He still didn't talk. In the end, after having been starved from 240 pounds to 120 pounds, his was an example that earned him the final distinction as the second-to-last UN POW to be released across the Freedom Bridge. On the other side, he learned that the rangers he had so steadfastly protected from exposure no longer existed. I have a hard time listening to that part about his dad still. I found that uh, newspaper article, and I, but, uh, I don't think any, any dad can read that without getting choked up. Um, but not just that. I mean, every... I mean, the, all 750 pages of that document, it was all there, and you just do your best to compress, 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 get it, get as much in there as possible, because nobody else is writing about this guy. You know that you, I mean, I, at least I suspected, you know, this guy's lost to history. Um, well, last time we, you were on and we talked about this, actually the first time you were on and we talked about this, I said, that's the next book, right? Like. <laughs> Take those 750 pages, get it yeah. down. Let's chop it down to, you know, 500. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, there's, there, there'll be problems to do that, but I think you're What right. would be I the mean, problems? Because I'll pro- just go and photo, photocopy that thing no, and no, publish no, that right that. there. It's, the, it's the, uh, the, the way that the documents are, are lined out. It's a, each one of these things, or each uh, of that 750 pages, all of these are, uh, most of the things in there are interviews with inmates. Other inmates. Other inmates, and there's no, like, chronology to them. So... What I've done, which is a, uh, I mean, it's a kind of a wrap up or, or like a, a montage of things. That's the best I could do, uh, considering the timeline that mm-hmm. that I had available to me. Um, but what else is not in there? I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the entire epitaph for for Martin Watson is, you know, what comes what comes after the war, and that's, 
you know, what comes after the war for so many of these guys. You know, I've talked to, you know, uh, a number of his, you know, family members, um, and it's, it's tragedy. I mean, though he survives the war and, you know, he comes back and, uh, I mean, he's honored, you know, he's um, not sufficiently, I don't think. I mean, if there's anybody in the book that, you know, is, is a, a deserving uh, military member of the Medal of Honor, it's, it's Watson. Uh, I think he was he received right I know he received a silver star for that uh, which I think is completely insufficient um, but what happens after the fact is you know he comes back to a wife comes back and he has children and he's not capable of managing that um, ultimately he is because of his demons he leaves his family uh, escapes to uh, Alaska and you know works on a uh, an oil pipeline uh, for years only sees his son, uh, I think, uh, like two dozen times, uh, and you know, after uh, he leaves, um, gets cancer uh, and dies. I think when his son is about twelve years old. Um, one of the last memories that his son has of him is in the hospital bed. He's completely he's shrunk from you know this you know monster of a man that he used to be into you know this uh, emaciated figure. Uh, and every time his son would come to the hospital to, to see his dad, uh, his, his dad, the, the password that he had to knock or he, that uh, he had to give before he came into the hospital room was courage. So, again, um, unbelievable detail in here. Um, Although you did you did mention there's a, a raid that you cut from the book. Yeah, um, the Huichon Dam raid. On the, the Huichon Dam. What was that all about? So the Huichon Dam raid is um, it's another you know failed attempt. It's it's probably the one um, if if the Virginia one raid wasn't uh, wasn't the raid that would have convinced army planners that uh, you know the Rangers had a purpose to play in this in this conflict. Uh, than it was the the Weichon Dam raid, and that was a um, uh, it, it was happening almost at the exact same time as the uh, as the Virginia One team was escaping uh, south um, along the peninsula, uh, but it was um, it was a uh, it was not well planned, uh, but it was a it was supposed to be a raid. On uh, to to seize a dam from the North Koreans or from the, the from the Chinese that were holding it, and they had to row across a, a lake. They they had to collect you know what uh, what uh, little uh, boats that the army had. Uh, I mean, within 24 hours, they they threw this thing together, and the Rangers had to. Uh, paddle secretly across, land on an enemy shore, and then climb up a mountain uh, to try and get around this dam. Uh, and uh, in the process of that, they're uh, contacted by a sort of a readout, you know, uh, uh, that was uh, positioned well away from the dam. They didn't even get close to the dam. So before, you know, the morning is even out, uh, they can't uh, they can't retreat, they can't uh, advance, they can't receive supplies. Um, uh, eventually they are... Uh, uh, another force comes and, and relieves them and rescues them, but the raid itself is uh, is a disaster. Uh, it's not uh, until later that uh, uh, the dam is actually um, uh, pummeled by uh, navy um, navy uh, fighter or fighter bombers that, uh, the, that the raid is uh, dismantled or taken. Um, 
but that was the one raid I thought, you know, if, if I couldn't do the Virginia one raid and I couldn't show how the Army, you know, had turned its back again on this raider concept, then it would have been the, the Wei-Chan Dam raid. Um, it's, it, it's, you know, equally, you know, dramatic and it's equally um, important. Um, it's just one of those things. You have to make a choice as, you know, as a historian. What are you going to focus on? You've got to, you know, keep moving your reader into the next, you know, you don't want to just jam them up in Korea. You've got to keep, keep moving forward. So... Um, and so ultimately we end up leaving the Korean War with still no real commando unit. Correct. And um, moving in past the, past the Korean War into Chapter 9, Arleigh Burke, the Bay of Pigs, and the launching of the Navy's limited war seals. And I'm going to the book on this. Proposed as separate and distinct from the fleet's UDTs, the recruits for the new, for the two new SEAL teams, one on each co- coast, would, like Adam's rib, be drawn from them. Ten officers and fifty enlisted men per team, all graduates of the training first conceived for the scouts and raiders, then modified by Kaufman for the NCDUs. The specialized training needed to create the SEALs, said the memo would occur at existing Army and Navy schools or could be added to the present UDT curriculum as required. Before long, rumors of a naval commando unit began to hover so thickly above the UDTs that many took the clouds for smoke of their own making. It would require another six months of CNO-level conversations, meetings, and memoranda to allocate funding, to carve out basing, to hammer out organizational plans and chains of command, to purchase commercial watercraft and fund new research for silent motors, to resurrect six mothballed APDs from retirement, to study the country of South Vietnam, and there to embark on a type of riverine warfare, said one memo that the Navy had not seriously attacked since the war between the states. And at the end of that six months, the Navy would quietly, without any ceremony, commission SEAL Team 1 on Coronado Island in San Diego and SEAL Team 2 at Little Creek in Virginia Beach. So this is, we're starting to get to that culminating point. Yeah, they... um I mean the I mean you touch on the controversy there. I like mean the there's this whole period um after the SEAL teams are created where uh, guys start coming out of the woodwork to say, this was my idea. I I did this. I'm the one that wrote the memo. All right, let's see it. <laughs> let's see the memo. <laughs> you know? Uh Roy Boehm, who was uh, uh he he wrote an entire book called The First SEAL. I mean, he, he makes the case that it was him that put this thing together. And he based, you know, his idea uh, in part off of uh, Mary Miles's book, A Different Kind of War. A Different Kind of War didn't come out for five years after <laughs> after when the SEAL teams were created. Oh. <laughs> so to, to use Mary Miles is like his book is the anyway. Um, but, yeah, there, I mean, there's a oops. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, but. You know, it's this whole thing. This, none of this would have happened without, like we talked about in the you know, the last episode, not without the effort, without the foresight of Burke and um, 
you know, there were lots of, uh, lots of, you know, folks in, in the UDTs that they had no interest in, in going in this direction. There were some that did. I mean, there was a, there was a contingent of folks. And, and like I talked about Fielding, Boynton, uh, Atchison, there were guys that had, uh, experienced those, uh, you know, those raids in the Korean war and they knew that there was something that more that they could be doing. Um, but I don't think anybody in the UDTs was proposing this, 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 uh, this, this force, this go anywhere force. Uh, I mean, and the, and the, and the, the idea that this would be a go anywhere force, it's, it's there in the, in the original name. I mean, nobody had really thought that, you know, they were going to be uh, creating this capture kill commando force, but they had thought of that go anywhere capability. And that's there from the beginning, that sea, air, and land capability. Mm-hmm. And that was all derived from uh, this series of uh, committees and um, uh, you know memoranda um, and, and meetings that Burke had convened with his senior staffers, and they had pulled that from all the ideas that they'd been collecting from the fleet. They'd been interviewing and talking and um, having people write white papers uh, and just develop ideas. And um, I mean, the one you know genius of Burke is that he realizes he's not a genius. He's pulling ideas from every place he can possibly get them. So when, you know, these guys say that it was my idea, you know, I'm not necessarily, you know, so confident that they didn't, mm-hmm. you know, send these memoranda. We just don't have them. We, we don't, I mean, there's only one person who's responsible for that, you know, final establishment, and that's him. Him. Burke. The, the strange thing about this is, you know, when you say, well, there's a lot of UDT guys that were sort of like, hey, we don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And if you were to if you were to ask, probably the entire time that I've been that I was in the SEAL teams up until today, the percentage of people that, if you gave them the choice of what type of operation they wanted to conduct, yeah, right. <laughs> I know you know where a, I'm going this with this, is right? The puzzle. Like right. everyone would would say. Hey, we, we want to be on land. We want to push into the land. We want to push into the hinterland. We want to. It's is it cool to come over the beach? Hell yeah, it is. It's awesome, but we want to go over the beach. We want to yeah. get from the water to the land. That's where the the cool things are happening. Uh, it's interesting to think that. It's it's interesting to think that you would, back in the day, like I ne- if it wasn't if it wasn't for the SEAL teams, if I didn't see pictures of freaking guys dressed up like commandos with machine guns in Vietnam, I never would have joined the Navy, ever. N- not in a million years. If you had only seen a picture of a guy in swim trunks with a dive knife. Yeah. I mean, yeah, was that as... Yeah, yeah. what is that? What, what are you doing? I don't know. But the, the thing is, like, everybody who, you know, joined the SEAL teams in that era, that's what they were joining for. They weren't joining because of the SEAL teams. Nobody knew what the SEAL teams were. It wasn't until, you know, they got there and they were like, oh, there's this other thing? Yeah. Like Mike Thornton, Tommy Norris, Pete Peterson, Bob Gallagher, they didn't join the SEAL teams. They joined the, they joined the UDTs. They joined to be UDTs. Yeah, and... You know, regardless, they they created this institution. The other thing that's interesting about this is when you think about the senior leadership in the in the Navy, including Burke, being on a ship off the coast, unless you're in World War II and you're getting attacked by kamikazes, being in a ship off the coast of combat is is totally it's a world away. Mm-hmm. If you're in a ship off the coast of a combat zone, you are a world away from combat. Like I said, unless you're in World War II and there's freaking kamikazes coming at you, God bless you. 
But if you're not in World War II, or whatever this next war is gonna be, or whatever this next war is gonna be, possibly, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're in a different scenario. So it's interesting to think that, that, the, that the senior leadership thought, let us get involved in that. Let us, the Navy, get involved in that stuff over there, mm-hmm. over the horizon, onto the land where there's bullets and bad guys and snakes, right? It's, you would think part of the Navy would say, hey, look, that's not really our business. That's not our thing. We're staying in our lane over here. We'll get you to the beach. You take it from there. So if, if it wasn't for this void that the Navy had seen over and over and over again where they couldn't get someone to do what we needed them to do, the, the Navy couldn't get commandos to do what they needed commandos to do, I mean, anybody could have stepped into this role. Anybody could have, and and uh, um, when when I uh, look back, and, and you know, you can almost use the uh, uh, example of aviation uh, as as a counter to my you know whole thesis. You could mm-hmm. say like, um, well, you know, just because you know the Army and the Marine Corps had failed to do this doesn't mean the Navy wouldn't have you know. Uh, you know uh, done this as well. I mean, you could have had the Rangers, uh, you could have had the Green Berets, you could have had all these entities, and the Navy still would have created the SEAL teams. And I say that's, I don't think so. And and the reason I, I, I think that that's wrong is because of all these episodes of the Navy uh, attempting to partner time and time again. Like the Navy is, is constantly saying, we will support yeah. you. We will just let us partner with something. Stop, you know, taking this away from us. Because all through the Korean War, all through World War II, you know, the Navy is sponsoring various commando units. So I don't, I mean, I, I think that argument, um, and I don't, it's not an argument that's been made back to me, but it was an, always an argument that I was thinking about when I was writing this book, like to confirm, you know, to, to sort of, you know, means test my, my own thesis. Like none of this would have happened without that neglect, but it also would not have happened without that, um, uh, with, without that mentality uh, that Burke had. So it was a combination of two things. You know, it was, yes, it was the neglect of the Army and the Marine Corps, but it was also, you know, not just neglect. It didn't just create that space. It was also, you know, you have this person who's, um, you know, this, this person of Burke who, you know, can't stomach a Navy that is not connected to combat. And if those two things hadn't collided, there would not be a SEAL team. Here's a... A hypothesis and I don't know uh, how, how this is gonna land but I'm taking a shot at it the water the water sucks for operations yeah. it completely sucks for operations it ruins your weapons it ruins your radios it makes you cold it it can kill you the water absolutely sucks for operations and throughout all of these opportunities for all these other units to say, hey, we got this, I, <laughs> it seems like at least it might have been a little bit of a factor, just a little tiny bit of a factor for everybody. When the big Navy says, hey, we need somebody that can stay in the water and also go up on land, everyone goes, hey, we'll just take the land part over here. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, oh, we'll give it a try, but then damn, that sucked. We were freezing, our weapons didn't work. Uh, we lost two guys that drown, right? That's what happens. And there's no enemy there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, without what do you any... want us to do back there? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
Yeah, there's some things that maybe you want us to blow up from time to time. And, yeah, you may want us to figure out how deep the water here is. But, you know, there. I mean, I, a lot of it's just, you know, the, you know, like that, you know, that whole, the whole um, you know, gap of the admirals or the revolt of the admirals. I mean, you, you, they want to prove they're relevant. Everybody wants to be relevant. Uh, and, and institutions are just collections of people. And, and, you know, institutions are going to make themselves relevant, whether it's in the market or with government agencies. I mean, we are, we're going to find opportunities or you're going to, if there are no opportunities, you're going to make them. And um, you're not, I mean, everybody wants to earn their paycheck and feel like they've done something. I mean, and if there's nothing to do, well, you're going to find it. Yeah, we're going to find something. Um, You talked about Burke's uh, CNO ceremony a little bit when we kicked this thing off. I mean, were you going to, yeah. What else were you going to say about that? Uh, the whole chapter had started. I, f- I found, uh, I actually found uh, Burke's CNO ceremony on YouTube. I don't know how many times I watched it. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know how this many. This is when he became CNO? Yeah. There's a. There's, That's on YouTube? That's on YouTube. Damn. And I mean, I think there's, you know, uh, 500 views. <laughs> I'm responsible for 485. <laughs> um, how long is it? It's like, well, I mean, they, they compress it. It's like yeah. a, um, and I think there's a couple of different versions of it, but uh, maybe 30 minutes. Okay. But there's different speakers and everything, and I'm, I'm watching this thing, like, time after time. I remember watching this thing, like, you know, in the middle of the night, like, you know, <laughs> I'm not doing anything bad. I'm watching <laughs> I'm watching 50-year-old uh, Navy uh, CNO. Uh, you know, um, Did he give a powerful speech or something? No, his speech is terrible. He's not a good speaker. Uh-huh. He's sort of choppy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of other speakers that get up in the process that are actually that are better than him. So why are you so hyped on this thing that you watched it 499 times? You know, I think a lot of it was just because, I mean, you know, some of the things that are said, you know, they're talking about this, you know, this revolution uh, that's, that's undergoing uh, with naval warfare or that's about to, you know, undergo with naval warfare. Uh, and when, when Burke gets up, he articulates sort of, you know, his ideas. And, you know, so many of his ideas are, you know, uh, the, the Navy's at the cusp of this technological revolution. And so when Burke comes into office, my, you know, any, any person who listened to that speech would think, all right, well, the Navy is going to evolve. Uh, they're, they're going to go deeper. They're going to go further up. They're going to, uh, you know, start taking advantage of nuclear weapons. It's going to be a technological revolution uh, in the Navy. And that's what, where it will stop. But that's not what happens. Burke's um, uh, uh, Burke's interest, um, uh, Burke's emphasis does not stop. He yes, he he modernizes the fleet. He takes uh, he he puts nuclear weapons on submarines. Um, he he stretches the navy's uh, reach from you know the bottom of the ocean to the edge of the atmosphere. Uh, but in between that gap, he also does a lot of things. And you know I think the most consequential is the establishment of this unit. And you wouldn't have predicted that, or you would not have seen, you know, a, uh, um, um, he, he would not have, you know, conveyed any plans like that in that, that presentation, so, or that initial speech. I, so I was watching it, not just for what was said, but what, for what was not said. How much credit are you giving to Kennedy in this whole gig? So Kennedy, so there's a lot of, you know, old frogmen that you meet um, who uh, they still think that uh, the SEAL teams would not exist without Kennedy. Um, it's a really, com- 
uh, apparently compelling, you know, myth. I don't know why, because, you know, Kennedy uh, dies in November of 63. The SEAL teams are established in January of 62. And if there's anything that we learn, you know, in the preceding chapters of this book is that, you know, all of these units, you know, they they could have been you know killed in the crib you know they could have you know strangled to death in in infancy or smothered you know by a pillow is how I describe it like the, the, these all of these units could have been you know disbanded I mean the SEAL teams are only two years old at the time of Kennedy's death so even if Kennedy had been responsible and I don't think he is because uh, all of the um, committees that Burke has convened. Um, before Kennedy's even elected, you know, they proceed, you know, they proceed his, his election. They're already mentioning, uh, you know, the word seal before Kennedy's elected. They have these plans already in place. Um, Kennedy's supportive of them, um, but he's not the he's not the reason that they're um, uh, put into place. Yeah, some, some of Kennedy's speeches, you know, he's talking about unconventional warfare. He's talking about all these commando type things and he wants everybody to get involved in this he does but the navy was the navy's already forward leaning into this i mean the 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 army too the army i mean and and when kennedy comes in you know his um you know he has a love affair with the the concept of you know counterinsurgency and the and his favorite you know unit of all time which is the army special forces Mm -hmm. but uh yeah, I think I, I've read a speech of his at West Point that's real. Actually, I've, I've read it on this podcast because it's sort, sort of how it, 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 it indicates so much the whole idea of the special forces and special operations and how big it's going to be for him. Uh, what about going as you're trying to research the Bay of Pigs? You know, you got the CIA. Was there how, how available is information about that? It's a black hole. I don't, I, to this day, huh? To this day, I don't know how many requests I made of the, the CIA's archives uh for information i would find you know a a thing here or there but not not very much um there i was able to find uh several of the frogmen that participated in the bay of pigs i was writing um up until the final days uh before the the publisher literally you know ripped the book out of my hands i was i was talking to um korean frogmen or uh, uh, Cuban frogman, um, and you know, found one. I couldn't believe I found him. Uh, interviewed him, and then uh, he gave you know me a number for another guy. Couldn't believe you know he did, and I talked to him. Gave me a number for another one. Before I knew it, I was talking to all these guys. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Didn't never expected you know to to find any of these you know, you know covert operatives, but you know here they are, and they wanted to tell their story. So it was pretty cool. Awesome. Um, so we get through that time. Anything else you want to cover in that chapter? Uh, I mean, you could no. I think I mean, Grayston Lynch and and Rip Robertson. I mean, these are th- these and these are guys that you cut. I didn't cut them. They're in the book. I mean, they they but they could be their down. own. Yeah, they could be their own books. I mean, they're both. You know, they're they're both the CIA. Um, you know, uh, not case officers. They're the paramilitary officers that are leading. Um, not just the the reconnaissance, not just the Cuban frogmen or the raid that the Cuban frogmen do, uh, but they're also uh, you know running the entire um, 
the, the, the mission. They're, they're back on ships, uh, you know, relaying information, doing everything they can to support uh, the invasion. They're held, you know, back. And then when uh, the, uh, the brigade forces collapse, uh, both Robertson and Lynch, they spend two weeks sleeping almost not at all, uh, doing everything they can to rescue as many uh, brigade survivors as they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when they finally do uh, get pulled, uh, or when they finally do get pulled, and the Navy's supporting that entire effort, um, the Navy doesn't support uh, the, the initial raid almost at all, despite uh, Burke's uh, repeated protests and his uh, repeated attempts to get Kennedy to, to let the Navy intervene. Um, but the Navy uh, does not abandon uh, the, the Cuban uh, brigade members. They, they uh, Night after night, the Navy's sending whale boats ashore, um, d- uh, do anything they can to rescue survivors. Um, and the most compelling uh, characters in the whole testimony uh, that uh, our Robert Kennedy uh, convenes in the aftermath of these two guys, when they, they show back up uh, to testify uh, in front of this committee, they're, they're completely sunburned black almost. They, they show up in uh, boots that are, salt, that are crusted white with salt water. I mean, they're pretty, uh, pretty convincing. <laughs> And, and Grayston Lynch, uh, you know, he goes to his grave, you know, uh, hating anything, you know, re- uh, remotely related to Kennedy. He goes on to another career. He was in Omaha Beach. Uh, he was at Omaha Beach. He became a, it was a Green Beret. He joins the CIA. I think he ends his government service with the DEA. He starts the DEA. You can believe it. Uh, that brings us up to uh, Chapter 10, which is titled... Kennedy's army of gladiators and the counterinsurgency that blunted their swords then cleared the way for another contender. Echo's getting a kick out of that one. And you, you, you know, you talk about the fact that this was a really hard chapter chapter for you to write. Um, and you, this is this is the, and it makes sense that it's hard to write because you've got the special forces. Yeah, which by all means, look, if the Marine Corps isn't going to make some kind of a maritime special operations go anywhere forced, then if the if the Marine Corps is not going to do that, then certainly the Army Special Forces should become this capability. And it's a very bizarre, I think bizarre is a strong word. It's a very interesting uh, uh, thing that drives them in a different direction. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it's totally unpredictable. I mean, they, they create them in 1952, sort of right after the failure of the Virginia One raid, but they see the potential of partisans, or they see the potential of guerrilla forces. I mean, uh, the one disadvantage that the West has uh, compared to the communist uh, forces of the Soviet Union are, you know, we don't have as many men. We just don't have the manpower. So, uh, or at least in the in the military, we don't. So uh, our idea or the, the idea of special forces Forces is to be able to, you know, parachute, you know, behind enemy lines and raise a, a guerrilla force to uh, raid the enemy's vulnerable spaces. Uh, the problem that they, you know, discover in this period between 1952 and 1962 is that the Soviet Union is not like other countries. It's not like the West. You know, if, if you want to, you know, create a partisan force in central Colorado, you might be able to do it. You might be able to find some, you know, wingnuts out there and raise a militia and, you know, go attack 
you know, oil plants or whatever. You could probably do that because we have an open society. I was going to say, that does happen. Probably. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you can't do that in uh, in a um, in, in, in a Gestapo state or right. the Soviet Union because they know they, they've got identity cards on everybody. I mean, you can't. Um, there's just not there's not the infrastructure to be able to do that. So the special forces, you know, have you know this idea that you're going to have behind the lines raiders made up of indigenous forces. It's it's ridiculous. So um, they sense that they know that, and they start to um, uh, you know evolve themselves. They transform themselves into a completely sort of different unit, which Kennedy finds out about, or it's sort of you know. The, these two things are sort of happening at the same time. Kennedy is discovering this concept of counterinsurgency and uh, the winning of hearts and minds and the, uh, the, the least, if not uh, um, the creation of uh, American freedom fighters, at least denying uh, tribesmen and uh, indigenous peoples to the Soviets. So why don't we support these people? Why don't we you know, give them weapons? Why don't we train them how to fight? Um, and it becomes, you know, the perfect, you know, marriage of uh, capability and an opportunity. Counterinsurgency and the special forces. So they're married together, mm-hmm. and that leads us into Vietnam. Yeah, the the transition. These guys started off where where they started, you know, in the early 1950s. Um, it looks like they could end up just being a good commando force or a, a straight-up commando force. Absolutely. I mean, I'm going to the book here. You say established in 1952, the Special Forces had been intended to replicate the experiences of its founder and first commander, former OSS operative Colonel Aaron Bank in 1944. As a 41-year-old Jedberg, he had dropped into France, led resistance fighters, then in 1945, as as it sounds, had almost led an operational group of German POWs into the Alps on a mission to capture Hitler. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Guided by these examples, Bank and his successors had erected an, an organization to match their mission. 2,000 airborne qualified soldiers spread across three forward-staged battalion-sized groups, one in Okinawa, one in Germany, one in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, all ready at a moment's notice to drop into an enemy country and lead a ready band of resistance fighters to physically create these groups a special warfare center had been hacked out of a remote corner of Fort Bragg in the mid 1950s and volunteers had been recruited plenty of former Rangers old jockstrap type commandos no first enlistments or second lieutenants permitted to apply the and ushered through a three-month course in guerrilla warfare with a staggering 90% dropout rate This was followed by language instruction and individual courses in one of four specialties, weapons, demolition, radio communications, and longest of all, medicine. The pipeline culminated with a multi-week exercise in which candidates infiltrated a uh, notional enemy country, linked up with a band of dissidents, which are other candidates, sent up a hinterland base camp, imparted their individual specialties, and then led their guerrillas on a series of raids and ambushes, all while avoiding an aggressor force of local deputies, National Guardsmen, and state police. There you go, man. That's special forces. I mean, that's, uh, what is it, Robin Sage? It's Robin Sage, yeah. And they still have it, and they... You know, still the idea is that you're going to be able to uh, lead or, or find these groups. I think that's the, that's, the, that's the trick is how do you find these groups in, you know, Soviet societies or societies where, you know, you have a, an aggressive 
you know, you know, Gestapo type police force. You 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 don't have a free society. Like, and the only place that you're going to find, you know, uh, a ready pool of candidates to, you know, join a, a thing like this is in, um, you know, sort of ungoverned spaces where there aren't, you know, these, uh, uh, you, know, a, you know, state police yeah. or secret police. Well, what's the deal with Yarbrough's daughter? Oh, it's one of the, you know, things that I, I was, uh, so Yarbrough, he, he's the, um, um, it was tough to find the character in this. I always try to, you know, uh, when I was working on a chapter, working on a, uh, a different unit, I was always trying to find, you know, one, you know, the operation that was, um, you know, most consequential to driving, you know, that mission's either success or failure, their their um, continuation, their disbandment. But then once I found the, the operation or the, the program or something, I was always trying to find the character uh, that was most important uh, to that mission's success or failure. Um, and Yarborough... This this chapter is distinct in one way. It's, it's not. There's no operation. I'm I'm covering lots of little mini battles. I mean, war is changing at this point. So you know the the sort of the um, uh, the 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 chapter structure that I had settled on in World War II and the Korean War. You know where I focus on one main uh, operation. It's kind of gone at this point in the book because you know there's no one. There's so many battles that are occurring or so many little small skirmishes, but. You know, I focus on Yarborough because he's the person who um, he creates the special warfare center or the the schoolhouse for Green Berets, um, and and marries uh, you know the Green Berets to this uh, this new um, uh, operation of counterinsurgency. So there's no more commando operations for the special forces, no raiding or anything like that. It's only coin or counterinsurgency. So he's training guys not to just you know. Uh, lead ambushes and things like that, but he's teaching his guys to uh, dig wells and you know how you know animal husbandry and how do you how do you convince you know tribal people you know to to join your your group? You have to you know you've got to do med checks, you've got to do all the sorts of things that nobody really likes to do. Um, but in the course of him you know overhauling the special warfare center. Um, and in the course of him preparing to showcase this to uh, Kennedy for Kennedy's visit to Fort Bragg, uh, his daughter, who's um, about to uh, mar- get married uh, to a- another Green Beret officer, uh, she's in a-, a terrible car accident and dies. She's killed. And uh, uh, Yarborough is a month away from you know his you know career making. Um, uh, presidential visit. Uh, this is going to, you know, this visit is going to either make or break the uh, the special forces, everything that he's worked for. Um, and in that period, he, like I write in the book, he cinches down his grief and uh, he gets back to work. The first thing he does, and I managed to talk to, um, I interviewed Yarbrough's daughter's fiance. He never married uh, after uh, she was killed. Um, she was, uh, but he said the first thing that he did, and he talked to uh, the, the general several times after uh, his fiancée was killed, but the, the first thing that Yarbrough, Yarbrough did after his wife died is the same day he went through the house and he took down every picture of her. You mean after his daughter died? After his daughter died. He went through the house, Yarbrough did, and he took down every picture. Got rid of every trace of her. He couldn't handle the grief. Shut, he just shut it down. And then he spent the next month doing everything he could, he poured himself into um, getting ready for that presentation. And Yarborough drove the special forces, as you just said, into 
not being a commando force, but being a counterinsurgency force. Right, which creates another gap. Uh, which which leaves the gap. The gap remains. The gap remains. Um, now we end up with chapter 11. The first seals, their search for a mission, and the report that found it for them. The Bucklew Report. What's going on? So... Um, in 1964, the Navy, um, the Navy seeing that there is you know, trouble in uh, Southeast Asia and wants to contribute but does not know how. The Navy is run by um, traditional um, uh, blue water sailors, as it always is, um, and is trying to figure out how to contribute to this you know, conflict, and they, um, they, they gather together uh, seven uh, seven naval officers, led by a, uh, um, a a blue water sailor, Admiral Savage. Uh, they um, send this survey team to Vietnam to, you know, get a lay of the land and figure out how the Navy can contribute. Um, it's uh, the group itself is you know comprised of uh, a lot of the Navy's kind of unconventional thinkers. Um, uh, David Del Judas, who's the first commanding officer of SEAL Team One, uh, he's there. He's sort of acting as a uh, contributor slash uh, admiral's aide. Um, there's a former UDT officer, a Silver Star winner, um, and there's uh, Phil Bucklew and, uh, and uh, several others who have spent considerable time in Vietnam. So Phil, Phil Bucklew, um, at this point, is he, he's a captain or an 06. Um, he's the second in command. Uh, they're there for less than a week when uh, Admiral Savage has a, I'm not sure, the record is unclear, he has either a heart episode or he um, he, he gets uh, into an alcohol-related incident <laughs> and is forced to uh, retire back to uh, the States. Regardless, it leaves Phil Bucklew in charge of the survey team. Now, what would have happened if Admiral Savage had uh, remained in his position as the uh, as the survey leader? I don't know, but what we do know is what did happen, and that's Phil Bucklew, who was the um, the most um, uh, forward leaning, or um, uh, you know, he, he the the person who's still in the military who has uh, experienced every unconventional. Uh, uh, phase of the Navy's sort of inland adventurism. He's now in charge of this, uh, this survey team. They spend six weeks you know, going around the entire country. They go to civil, uh, special forces camps. Uh, they, they travel up the Mekong River. Uh, they examine uh, where uh, supplies are coming in if they are, uh, as the Navy is contending or as the Navy argues, that they're being uh, sailed down um, uh, around the coast and uh, infiltrated um, uh, along, uh, along the, the ocean coast. Um, and what they figure out is that none of that is happening. None of the, uh, the Navy's claims are, are, are true. All of the uh, contraband, all of the weapons that are being funneled to the insurgency are coming right down that Mekong River. And they're being uh, injected uh, throughout the country uh, through various waterways. He discovers this and says, we are not going to have an impact if uh, the Navy uh, doesn't leave the blue water. Uh, and starts doing what uh, uh, the fleet did in the American Civil War, and that's hitting hitting the Brownwater Rivers. Um, and it in the report, you know, he makes a point to say that, you know, there's lots of opportunities for raiding along these rivers. He only mentions the seals once, never really connects them to that idea of raiding. Um, 
but he he does you know say explicitly in the report um, the Navy should be in charge of that inland raiding mission and when the report's delivered um, it's sort of a you know in the whole process of this like everybody's trying to get a, a hold of his report before he uh, 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 publishes it before he uh, takes it back to the Navy. Uh, Paul Harkins, who's in charge of uh, uh, MACV at the time, uh, his deputy, William Westmoreland, they're all trying, they're having lunch with him. Henry Cabot Lodge is the uh, um, uh, the ambassador to Vietnam. Everybody's trying to get a look at Phil Buckley's report. Phil Buckley, to his credit, he does not want to let this thing out of his hands until he has a chance to let his uh, Navy superior see it first. It's, uh, you know, it's still controversial. Like, you know, uh, the, the Navy, like I said, the Navy had been involved in a war like that for uh, over for over a hundred years. Um, so you're saying it's controversial be, because of that? It's controversial because he's advocating for, you know, this this uh, this riverine force, this uh, this force that's going to take us away from the blue water, away from you know the Navy's emphasis at that point, which is aircraft and air car- and, and aircraft carriers and. Um, and nuclear subs and everything like that. You're 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 putting us back in the weeds. Um, but having been uh, you know the uh, a, a veteran of the Scouts and Raiders, uh, and then a veteran of Saco, and then a um, uh, in charge of the Navy's um, uh, um, relationship with the CIA during the Korean War and all the various CIA raids uh, with the UDTs uh, in the Korean War. I mean, he is. He's positioned. I mean, his, he's he's taking his biography and he's saying, "Well, why shouldn't we be doing this? I, I've experienced two wars where we've done this already. Uh, we we absolutely should be trying to support this effort as much as possible. If the if the government or if the country has decided that this is worth American lives, then it should be um, it, it should be a mission worth uh, na- Navy lives as well." And he delivers that report to just uh, Admiral Feld. And they, the commander in chief of the Pacific Fleet. They're they're head over heels in love with this thing. No, they're not head over heels. They they this report gets um, passed back and forth. I mean, it becomes like I said in the, in the book, it becomes a bit of a hot potato. Where does it get traction? Uh, it all. Uh, I'm not sure where it ultimately gets traction uh, because it, it takes two years for the, really the Navy to you know put this thing into effect before they field you know the Navy Riverine Force or CTF-116, Combined Task Force 116. Was there a champion for it above Phil H. Bucklew? Not that I could find. Um, Interesting. But everybody, uh, um, I, if, if I had to guess, I would guess it was probably somebody like Norville, Norville Ward, who becomes more important later. Um, but I'm not sure. I didn't find him. Hmm. One other part of this chapter that I wanted to, to run through, because it's pretty freaking awesome is this uh at some point the navy sends down some some uh uh like academics and some some psychologists (laughs) and so so i gotta read this part when the navy's academics had arrived in 1955 to observe udt training their purpose had been to validate the course's individual selection tests the soft sand runs the ocean swims the harassments of hell week and short of invalidating any of these to develop what they called realistic selection standards that would reduce what the Navy admitted was the course's excessive attrition. 
subjecting students to a battery of personality tests and classifying their individual traits, age, education, intelligence, and so on, the academics hopes not only to predict the candidate's likelihood of success in training, but also his success in an actual underwater demolition team. In the course of these assessments, they learned that the students below the age of 21 were 8% more likely to fail, roughly the same rate as high school dropouts. While students from broken homes were just as likely to graduate as anyone else. Based on the number of times a student had volunteered to visit the dispensary, which is medical, assessors determined that a candidate in moderate health who minimized the psychological importance of pain, fatigue, and intense discomfort stood a much higher chance of success than, quote, the most physically fit who were over-concerned about their injuries. So you're better off just being a tough son of a bitch that maybe can't run too quick, but I don't care if my knee hurts. I'm going to keep going. The least common traits among successful frogmen seem to be restraint, thoughtfulness, sociability, and cautiousness. The most common were responsibility, emotional stability, original thinking, objectivity, and most of all, masculinity. So, you know, as I read through that, I mean, it just, you, you just, picture every team guy that you know and you know where the bell curve is and yeah i mean i i had a i knew that this had to get in the book yeah. i bounced it around from section to section right. because i had about you know 15 years you know to play with i finally you know found a home for it here and i was i was really happy that i did there's lots of these little like assessments that they had put together over the years and they were trying to like understand and they still try and understand they by still the way. they still do and, and they still have no idea no idea uh that's that's why it's so great because it's just i mean this is a report done in 1955. Mm -hmm. We're still at this. We and still have no, like... The Navy still says, hey, why can't you figure out who's going to make it? Why is your attrition rate so high? They still say... I mean, the attrition rate right now is insane, it buds. It's insane. Like 10 15% are making it through. It continues on. Later studies had gone on to test a, a variety of variables, including the benefits of wheat germ in a student's diet, which proved predictive predictably negligible, and a series of Rorschach tests and psych psychiatric interviews to determine the effect of sexuality on a candidate's success or failure. Successful frogmen, said the sex reports author, appeared to require this specific, rather masculine and adventurous occupation with all of its self-destructive and masochistic implications because, and this was just the author's speculation of their magical attraction to the depth of the sea and the security of the womb and an unconscious motivation to prove their masculinity coupled with a fear of involvement with women. <laughs> uh, setting aside the psychoanalyst tendency to project their own insecurities onto their subjects, the Navy had not been able to argue with the UDT's results. That was not the worst dig. I got one in there. <laughs> I have never met a group of more self-reliant, hell-for-leather characters, wrote reporter Bill Stapleton after accompanying a UDT to St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands in 1955. Besides their typical reconnaissance exercise, exercises, submarine lockouts, and test with miniature submersibles, 
The frogmen had also salvaged a 50-foot yacht from a reef, twisted the tails of passing sharks, and when an American sailor had disappeared into the harbor on a moonless night, had commandeered a truck, roared to the wharf's edge, and as if they'd been scouting the contours of an enemy beach, dove online until they found the drowned man. In their free time, they spearfished, drank untold amounts of beer, erected beachside bonfires, and in overflowing pots of seawater and vinegar, boiled lobsters and astonished the superstitious natives by broiling barracuda steaks. You eat barracuda, barracuda eat you, they had said. Promises, replied a frogman, nothing but promises. So exclusive were the UDTs, said one observer, that even rank meant nothing to them. When seen in their standard swim trunks and belt knives, surrounded by charts and diving equipment, and asked by passerby if they were indeed in the Navy, the frogmen would invariably reply, regardless of the asker's rank, nope, we're all in UDT. <laughs> uh... So there you go. I went to St. Thomas one time. Did you? Yeah, and it sounds about like this. <laughs> we rented a room. So we were doing training in Puerto Rico, and I think we got we got a little we chartered a plane. And bro, this is a like 1990 whatever. I mean, this is not when you people are chartering planes. I don't know who pulled this together. <laughs> we chartered a plane. We go to St. Thomas. We get there, that place is beautiful by the way. But we rent, we've got an 18 man, we were, a, we were an ARG platoon. We've got an 18 man platoon. So I'm pretty sure everyone went, but most of us went. We got a bunch of guys, most of the platoon. We rent one hotel room for everyone to stay in because you know we're all cheap. And besides, who's planning on sleeping when we're gonna be, uh, long story short, when I get back to the hotel room at seven or eight o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning, <laughs> there's all these guys are asleep. And I remember there was someone that had pulled, because there was air conditioning in the little hotel we were staying. So two guys had pulled the curtains off, like ripped the curtains off the curtain rods and were rolled up in the curtain rods like blankets <laughs> on the floor, <laughs> like a bunch of just savages. <laughs> so really not that much has changed. Yeah. The young UDT uh, spirit survives. Um, and meanwhile, this report that you that, that you talked about is is circulating, and now we're starting to get some some traction and starting to figure out um, what's going on. Chapter twelve, chapter twelve, which is called. The dam break of conventional war in Vietnam and the following flood of raiders that failed to beat the Navy to the Mekong Delta all but one. That's impressive, right, Echo? <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Let me get into this one a little bit. Uh... The CIA had already discovered there were challenges at attempting to break a wild herd of Mustangs. These are Vietnamese soldiers that they're trying to tra train into wearing a warrior's a war chariot's yoke. 
The CIA's initial solution to this Mustang breaking was, as usual, to outsource the job to the U.S. military's trainers and advisors. In this case, however, the CIA's planners did not offer the job to their standby pool of Special Forces A-teams, but instead took a long-shot chance on a three-man element from SEAL Team 1 a gamble due to the elements leader, a man who had convinced the CIA planners that he was the equivalent of an entire Special Forces A team. He almost was. With a boxer's jab that could part the Red Sea, said one who saw it, and a six foot three inch frame that could have waded through it, it had been natural to assume that storekeeper first class Robert Wagner's most Likely contribution to the SEAL teams would have been in pure pugilistic combat. His instincts for it were undeniable. Driving a Jeep through a MACV compound and passing so close to an army sergeant that the offended man had taken a swing at Wagner's lieutenant. In the passenger seat, Wagner had responded by slamming on the brakes, then beating the sergeant so savagely that the lieutenant had feared for the man's life. I never saw anything like that, the lieutenant said later. Not an uncommon expression whenever Wagner was around. As one of the only enlisted UDTR graduates of that period to be selected to skip the mandatory stint in UDT for a direct assignment to a SEAL team, Bob Wagner, despite a wife and four young children, had predictably risen to become one of the team's most eager volunteers for repeat deployments to the Ben High and LDNN three six-month tours in three years. In his role, he had earned a reputation among superiors that had swung between the superlatives of perfectionist advisor and perfect seal, reputations he had cultivated while simultaneously building a name as a wheeler dealer for his part ownership of a beachside bar in Da Nang called the Blue Moon. Clean cut for a seal, even by 1960s standards, his face a graph of hard angles and straight lines below a flat top deliberately raked to attention, his only physical feature that suggested he was anything more than a lockstep conventional were his eyes. Hard, focused, a bit like a predator in pursuit of its prey and implying a similar pace. Dude, you're a good freaking writer, man. That, I mean, that's just an awesome, an awesome little, uh, Thanks. little section there. So we got the Mac Sog, we got Force Recon going on, we got the Lerps, we got the PRUs. Yeah, it's a tough one. This is a tough, it's a tough uh, uh, period to cover because all the stuff is happening all, all simultaneously. This is the one chapter that sort of stands alone in the uh, in all my chapters. It's, they don't focus on one person. I focus on you know four uh, distinct. Uh, units, uh, probably the most important being the one you just read, Bob Wagner, who is, um, he is, he's a tough character to, to, um, uh, compress and to, you know, he, it's, it's, it's difficult, you know, to, you know, highlight seals that were, you know, standouts or, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a standout group already. I mean, the, you know, the guys that are selected from UDT uh, to come to the SEAL teams, they're the, they're the best guys in UDT. Um, and then to you know, fo- you know, figure out who the best guys in the SEAL teams were at this point is, is also difficult. But then when you, you know, look at somebody like Wagner, who kind of stands above everybody you know, in his um, 
one his foresight, uh, but his uh, his ability to you know you know use everything, all the all the tools that he has in his personality, everything from straight force. I mean, he uh, in the in the course of his um, um, creation of the PRU camp, lots of different um, entities come in to try and steal this from him, and he uses a variety of uh, ways to keep them out. One, he just threatens to kick their ass. Two, uh, he, you know, like I say in the book, he threatens to just, you know, pack up his bags and go home, which, you know, convinces the CIA planners to push everybody else aside. Uh, he, he um, uh, so I mean, he's, but, you know, all while he's doing that, while he's building this program that nobody else is building, and he's just, I mean, he's running from place to place to place. He's participating in missions. He's conducting rifle range te- uh, training himself. He's managing his own bar. Um, he, you know, he doesn't, I mean, he, he created the one bar, the blue moon in Nang, but he also creates a separate bar down, uh, he's like franchise and liquor places. I mean, he's like, there. in some sense, he's the, you know, he's the, the 1966 version of Jocko. <laughs> <laughs> he's just, I mean, he's completely, um, but he's, uh, um, and you know, the whole time he's got, you know, family with uh, five kids, you know, back <laughs> home. but he's like, he, he'll come home for six months. He'll deploy for six months. He'll come home for six months. I mean, he's just, he's relentless. And by this point, you know, in his career, he's already done six separate tours to Vietnam. Like he's, he's incomparable. Um, uh, while he's doing that, while he's, where did you get most of your information about him from? Uh, there were, uh, there's been a, um, decent amount of. Well, he he did a recording um, uh, to capture this entire creation. He did it with uh, Franklin Anderson. So Franklin Anderson was his commanding officer at SEAL Team 1. He finds out uh, what Wagner has been doing and um, thinks that Wagner has been kind of, uh, you know, exceeding the boundaries of what he was uh, been allowed to do. So <laughs> Wagner, um, he sits down with an interviewer that he commissions himself, and he explains the whole thing. He's not going to take his time to write down everything he did, but he's like, you want to talk to me about this? Bring an interviewer here, and then you can take the transcript back to uh, Anderson. And he does it. He, he trans- the, the whole thing is recorded. He transcribes the thing and passes it back to SEAL Team 1 Commander Anderson. Anderson reads the thing and becomes his greatest advocate at that point. Um, so, yeah, he did break all the rules to make this happen, but he didn't. It's a good little leadership thing. Sometimes when you're in a leadership position and you're watching something happen from the outside and it looks a certain way and it's pretty easy to get caught up in it. You don't necessarily even have to be a leadership position, but like, you know, let's say you're watching a different unit. You know, I'm watching a Marine Corps unit and see what they're doing from afar and I think, what the hell are these guys doing? And you, if you don't, if you're not careful, you can look at someone from a distance and start to be very judgmental without actually understanding anything of that that's going on on the ground. So that's something I always tried to be very careful of. If I was watching a unit, they were doing something that didn't seem to make sense to me. Instead of me going, Ben's over there like an idiot running these operations, I would actually reach out to him. You say, hey, Ben, can you explain to me what's going on? It looks like you're doing some wild stuff. Can you talk to me, talk me through why it's happening? Uh, that's a mistake that, that that people make and you have to be careful of it and that's a great example of well what do you do if you think somebody's well what you should do is go talk to them go find out what's going on and you know what maybe you do see something that maybe i do say hey ben you start telling me how you're doing it and i say hey you might want to think about this and you go oh, that's a good point 
you know? Or maybe I say, oh, wow, I, I, I understand now what you are. You know, we had a little bit of this with uh, doing daytime operations in Ramadi. Uh, why the hell are SEALs doing daytime operations? And it, it's like I could completely understand someone thinking that, right? What, what are you doing? Why are you giving up your advantage of doing operations at night when we have night vision and the enemy doesn't? Hey, that's a great point. Here's the thing. We are, our, our actual mission tasking from the siege of Sodaf is to train and fight company and platoon-sized elements of Iraqi soldiers. Guess what they don't have? Night vision. Matter of fact, they would have about one flashlight for every four guys. So taking these guys out in the middle of the night was dangerous. And did we do it? Yes, we did. We did it usually in direct action raids where we could set up a situation where white light was okay because we had already you know, set off a breach or whatever and now we're just clearing buildings or they're just clearing buildings. But we, 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 we had to get the, in order to fight these guys, in order to get them out on the battlefield, they're gonna have to do stuff in the day. That's part one. Part two is we owned the night and you know who knew that? The enemy knew that. And so guess what the enemy did at night? They didn't do anything at night. We'd go out at night, there'd be no one out there. Literally no one doing anything. But as soon as the day came out, or as soon as the, the sun came up and the call to prayer went, then it was, oh, here comes the enemy. Because they know they it's a more even match. And now they're out there moving amongst the civilian populace too, who's also awake and has to go, you know, down to the down to the corner store to grab some uh, dates from the from his neighbor or whatever. They start moving around. So now the enemy can move around with the camouflage of the local populace. Now, if I was on the outside seeing what the hell is Task Unit Bruiser out there doing daytime operations, it might not make sense. As soon as you get an explanation like that, it's like, okay, okay, I get it. There's some there's some r- reason for this happening. So that's a good lesson that uh, got learned right there. If someone's doing something that seems a little bit crazy, fi- ask them, find out, ask them why they're doing it. As it happens, uh, if we're gonna, I mean, Franklin Anderson is still around. Like he's... And he is, he's in his late 90s, but he's still sharp as a tag. I talked to him maybe a week ago. Cool. Let's get him on the podcast. He remembers everything. That's awesome. He's in Durango, Colorado. Uh, and anytime I call, um, you have to, you know, start leaving a message on the machine and just start talking because eventually his wife is going to pick up and invariably she's going to pick up and she's going to like, I didn't know who this was. Uh, he's in the field, you know, clearing cows or something. <laughs> he's always working. What a beast. He's incredible. And he's a, he's a little guy, he's a, but he's, I mean, he's still out there and he's still like, if I talk to him, if I ask him a question, okay, so was this guy at the team in 1960? No, that guy was an E5 in 1960. He told you he was an E6? No. (laughs) How do you know this? That's awesome. Yeah, he's a, he's a character. But I got, uh, so to answer your other question about how I got some of this information about Bob Wagner, I spent a lot of time talking to all the folks that he had done this with, Guy Stone, um, I talked to his son. I talked to a lot of the a lot of the people that were you know sort of, sort of surrounding him at the time. And he uh, not only is he uh, you know does he build this PRU program in Vietnam, but he comes home and he builds you know sort of the counterpart to the PRU program in the hills, um, you know, 200 miles away from the ocean uh, in uh, the Chocolate Mountains. He you know he he manages to convince 
um, a, a, a local real estate magnate to give him like 1,200 acres of uh, mountain territory or mountain scrub. And he overhauls the entire area, um, names it Camp Macon, um, and then he uh, um, he just he creates a, a mini PRU camp to train guys how to train other people and to lead them into combat. He, co- he goes back on his last deployment. Uh, he, uh, he's killed, um, and, uh, and the Navy recognizes, uh, his contribution is, you know, he's a store, he dies as a storekeeper first class, which for any of your listeners, a storekeeper first class means he's essentially a sergeant. He's an E6. Um, staff sergeant, staff sergeant, right. He's a staff sergeant. Um, and for his contribution for, you know, creating the PR, you know, the Navy's uh, contribution to the PRU program, for creating everything he did in the United States, uh, the Navy awards him a Legion of Merit, which is a totally, like, unheard of award for a first-class petty officer, you know, to get a two, but the Navy authorizes the V uh, for valor with it, Check. which never happens. So, I mean, one of the most highest, you know, awards that you can get, you know, one to a, you know, a storekeeper first-class SEAL. Um, his family, who I was able to interview, they, um, uh, his last child was born uh, just prior to his last deployment. Um, they were struggling to, you know, just comprehend, you know, their father's, uh, you know, death and, you know, not having him anymore. Um, the Navy contacts them, lets them know that he's going to be, you know, given this, you know, incredible honor. Uh, and... The Navy asked how if they would like to come out for the presentation of the, the ceremony. Um, the wife asks uh, the oldest son, the, the oldest of the, the children, he's 16 years old, if uh, and leaves it in his hands. Uh, would you like to go out and receive your dad's award? The son decides, I, I it's too much, and he says, uh, just mail it. I get it in the mail a couple weeks later. Oh, dang. But this chapter is, is not just about the PRU. This yeah. chapter is all about the neglect. Not the neglect, but, you know, the Marine Corps deciding that they aren't going to fight in the Mekong Delta and uh, the, the Marine Force Recon uh, deciding that they're going to support uh, the Special Forces on the, on the uh, CIDG camps. Um, and then the Marine Corps deciding, well, we don't really – it's too risky to have those guys out there at the CIDG camps. We're going to keep them with the divisions. Then it's about the, uh, the LERPs or the, the creation of uh, reconnaissance um, – uh, troops to support the divisions, whether it's the you know Project Delta with the Green Berets, or whether it's uh, the the LERPs with the individual uh, divisions. Both of these units are, you know, they're they look like SEALs. They probably act like SEALs. Uh, they um, probably would have had the same sorts of missions as SEALs. You know, in different parts of the country to go out, find the enemy, you know, kill them, capture people, and bring them back. But you know the emphasis of all of the divisions is to get these main these these big forces into combat with the enemy. So all they send them, these guys out to do is find the enemy, tell us where he is, and we'll send guys to you. I mean, it's it doesn't work because you know it's Vietnam and they're you know, small pockets of enemies. You know, if you don't contact them, if you don't you know engage them when they're there, they're gone. They're gone. They're gone. When when you make that radio call, now you got whatever, however long it's going to be, they're going to be gone. Right, they're gone. Um, and the most important thing about this whole period is that all of these units that are created, um, they're created in other parts of the country. They leave the one area of the country that has the most water, has the most uh, you know, reason for the Navy to be there, completely uh, open, open for another unit to come in. 
Um, Open for one unit to come in. Let's go to chapter 13. The derailing of the first direct action seals in the rung sat and the detachment that restored their prospects. Go into the book here real quick. When the seals of detachment Delta, or Debt Delta as it was called, arrived in February 1966, they numbered just three officers and 15 enlisted men, not much more than a single enhanced platoon, but a platoon so important to SEAL aspirations that it was led by Lieutenant James Barnes, SEAL Team 1's commanding officer. Known as a friendly and capable administrator, the ideal sort for forging partnerships and acquiring in-country assets, Barnes was a firm believer in the SEAL's traditional interpretation of direct action and upon arrival set to gathering intelligence on all the enemy's command posts, radar dishes, and bridges. Barnes's problem? These simply did not exist. On a map, the 400 or so square miles worth of rivers and canals of the Rungsat Special Zone looked like the splitting curving bronchioles seen in the cross-section of a human lung. On the ground, this lung was a putrid tidewater swamp that, when flushed, left behind a morass of boot-sucking mud flats and twisted root peninsulas, the high ground of which could mostly be measured above the waterline with a yardstick. Called the evil place by the locals or the forest of assassins by the Americans, and was and known as it as a past hideout for pirates the rung sat was by the time of the seals arrival reinforcing all of these reputations since it was the source of an increasing number of rocket attacks on saigon plus riverbank ambushes along saigon's main shipping channel so there you go here comes this guy, uh, Barnes, rolling in like, hey, we you know what we're going to do? We're going to take out their radar positions. We're going to take out their bridges. That's what we're going to do. Yeah, where are they? They don't exist. It's not that kind of war. I mean, this, I mean, the, you know, the example that you just used about, you know, getting to Ramadi and, you know, expecting to contact the enemy at night and do everything. Like, the one thing that I've learned about frogmen, or at least, you know, the, this modern, you know, interpretation of them is, they're going to adapt to find the enemy. And this is one instance where we don't. And we, we almost, or the, the SEAL teams almost, you know, got uh, turned, turned away at the front door. You know, Barnes comes in, like you said, he, you know, he finds that there's nothing that they've trained for. And, and his response, you know, not, not really, you know, not, not having ever done this before and not having, you know, any real, um, you know, playbook, you know, to, to work from, he decides... You know, we're we're this isn't for us, um, and uh, the uh, a series of liberty incidents ensue, and the navy is ready. To, you know, kick the, uh, the kick the seals out of the country. One, you're not you're not engaging the enemy like we expected you to, and two, you're causing problems. So, uh, what what do you want? So they turn you know to the commander of all the. Uh, uh, seals and country, who just so happens to be the person responsible for putting them there, Phil Bucklew. And they they present this whole problem to them. Bucklew uh, appeals to uh, the commander of MACV's uh, understanding of the naval tradition of leadership. Um, change the leader, you're going to change the rest of the organization. So 
Barnes is removed uh, after Bucklew's intercession, and an entire new detachment replaces uh, Debt, uh, Debt Delta, that is Debt Golf. And Debt Golf, the commander of Debt Golf, is uh, um, a junior officer by the name of, uh, of Maynard Wires, uh, comes in and completely overhauls what the SEALs are doing. Not overhauls the mission, because you know the mission up to that point had really just been to um, you go out into you know the country, set ambushes where you could, you know, see if you could find the enemy. Although they hadn't had any success, but just because they hadn't had success, um, Wires doesn't say that you know that's an excuse. Like like I said, you know, in the book, uh, his um, his message to his men at the time was, "This is the only war in town." We're not going to let it go to waste. <laughs> uh, and so he sends his guys out every night, and he goes with them. I mean, they're, they're out in the muck and the misery of the, the Rungsat special zone. And uh, night after night, whether you contact the enemy or not, we're going to be going out. So adapt yourself to that expectation. And, and that's the uh, detachment that restored their prospects. It does. They, I mean, by the end of that deployment, I think they have something like 80 kills. Uh, most of them are from one single contact. But they, I mean, they, 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 uh, they, they make things easier for themselves. They, they create like a houseboat uh, of a old World War II era landing craft. Um, they make it so they don't have to, you know, return to base so often. They improve their living conditions. Um, they essentially uh, just start going out for a few hours at a time. Um, and finding the enemy where, where possible, um, responding to uh, reports of uh, uh, enemy contact, and then you know patrolling to those areas. Um, and they get you know they're not you know this you know they're not what we understand to be the seals uh, today, but they're they're awfully close. What was Operation Jack's Day? Operation Jack's Day is a attempt. It was a sort of a, a Marine Corps Navy mission uh, right at the beginning, uh, right when um, uh, debt. Uh, uh, that Delta gets in country, and it's a uh, sort of a Marine Corps-led mission to sort of sweep uh, this one uh, suspected corner of the Rungsat Special Zone. And it's a, uh, I, I think they, they claim it, you know, to be this, you know, um, huge success when in fact it's, it's a bit of a disaster. Um, there's multiple heat casualties in the process. Uh, there is a there are a couple of enemy kills. I think the only thing real that they find in the entire uh, three week long uh, mission is a uh, um, a Viet Cong hospital, sort of a built up section of uh, um, log pathways and uh, and little huts. And other than that, they don't find much. Um, SEAL teams try to contribute to it. UDTs contribute to it. Uh, the UDTs bring... Um, I, I cut a bit of a section of the book on Operation Jack's Day. Um, it, was, it was mostly a litany of, of failures by both the SEALs and the UDTs. They had bad gear. They had, you know, they, they just... They, they, their contribution wasn't significant. Um, so... And you mentioned Guy Stone when you were talking about Wagner. What, what, what was his... Guy Stone. He, he didn't is, get much in the book. He gets a he gets a, a, a brief um, uh, you know nod, and that's um, he helps. Um, uh, he, he's he's Wagner's best friend. He's Wagner's best friend in the world. Um, he helps uh, set up the PRU uh, training camp, uh, but he's also important because he was a Korean War soldier. He was a forward observer in the U.S. Army. So when 
um, this, the, the leadership at SEAL Team 1 is trying to, you know, adapt, you know, their naval commando force to be, to, you know, to have more, you know, hard army skills. Who do they turn to, you know, outside of, you know, their traditional uh, avenues for support with, you know, the ranger school and things like that. They turn to a former soldier, Guy Stone. Guy Stone sets up a curriculum. Um, he gets smart on all of his old army um, manuals and he sets up training for SEAL Team 1 and starts putting all the guys through it. Before they go to Vietnam, they got to go through Guy Stone's course. Uh, so they managed to, and again, I mean, there's so that you have so many good stories in there about what what happened, what this looked like, who these characters were. Um, now we move into uh, chapter 14. The direct action seals who dodged diversion, then perfected a mission that propelled the teams past the riverbanks into history. Going to the book here. In the winter of 1956, Robert T. Gallagher joined UDTR, and I, I said that already today one time, but this is what Buds used to be called was UDTR, which is UD, Universal uh, Underwater Demolition Team's Replacement Training. So Gallagher joined UDTR Class 17 at Little Creek, a class comprised of 97 personnel, including five Navy officers, five U.S. Army soldier graduates from Ranger School, and one black sailor from Ohio who remarkably had taught himself to swim in a creek after a town order to integrate the local pool had prompted the owner to fill it with rocks. How'd you dig up that piece of information? I mean, that was from uh, Bill Goins. He was, uh, you know, the, the first uh, first Black Seal. He'd been one of the plank owners at um, Seal Team Two, and he's, you know, just. I mean, he's st- he, he's still still alive and still um, contributing. He's helping with the Navy's uh, recruitment efforts of uh, of Black sailors. I mean, he's uh, of you know minorities. He's he's an incredible person. And there's not a trace of, you know, bitterness. I mean, he's just, I mean, he has every every right to be bitter, you know, for, you know, everything that he went through. And he's just, talking to him is just, it's just such a, you know, it's a pleasure to talk to him. Let's get him on the podcast. Um, at one point in the first few weeks of the temperature had dropped so low that Gallagher and his classmates had been forced to break the ice that had crusted the edge of the Chesapeake Bay so their instructors could torture them in it. A ritual not unheard of in UDT's East Coast winter classes. After four weeks of this, four weeks of heaving logs over windswept sand dunes, four weeks of wet fatigues freezing to their skin, four weeks of elephant marches with boats on their head, a misery that had rubbed Gallagher's thinning, already thinning, thinning widow's peak raw, more than 50% of the class had quit, including one of the Navy officers and all five of the Ranger School graduates. It was just too psychological for them, one man remembered. And there had been so much farther to go. After a total of 16 weeks, Class 17 had shrunk to a mere shadow of itself. Of the 97 who had started, only 14 graduated. One of those, incidentally, was the undaunted black sailor from Ohio. Another, of course, was Gallagher. Gallagher's subsequent career in the UDTs was more than commendable. When Wherever he went, he excelled, and more. This reputation, plus his standing as a sturdy drinker, had made him a natural choice for the first batch of frogmen to join SEAL Team 2. 
There he had excelled again, undertaking the most difficult assignments, including a course to qualify as an explosive ordnance disposal technician, or EOD tech, one of the military's more cerebral ratings, and an eight-month overseas advisory billet to Istanbul, where he helped train the first all-Turkish Navy UDT class. From these assignments, it was possible for Gallagher's peers to assemble a portrait of his personality, hard-charging and intense, yet entirely devoid of pretense. When deployed, it was only on the rare occasion he was seen in anything but a rumpled pair of UDT shorts. He was above all known for his quiet confidence, the oxygen of, of his leadership, but with the emphasis on quiet. He had all the sensitivity of a rock, remembered one teammate. Unless at a bar, the only place he seemed to allow his sense of humor to walk around off-leash, he was just more pulled into himself than others, remembered a teammate. Just tough to get to know. For the, first of it, for, for the force of his personality, for his combat experience, Gallagher was from the moment he joined the 7th platoon's unofficial leader. No one argued with him, said Roy Matthews about to depart on his first deployment. You might win the fight but you'd never want to go to sleep again. The reality was actually less, slightly less severe. Certainly Gallagher was all the aforementioned, was remote, intense, almost humorless, but there was another quality that would soon help him become one of the best combat leaders in the history of the Navy. Essentially an orphan, from the day Gallagher had joined the SEALs, they had been, whether they knew it or not, his family. Nothing matters Nothing mattered as much to him, nothing except maybe the mission, a mission whose evolution would have no greater contributor than Gallagher. He's a, I don't, I don't even know where to start with Gallagher. I, I always, I say that I don't like the term hero, but if I have to, if you had to pick one or if you had to pick a, a person that, you know, to kind of, you know, set up as a, as a as an example for young frogman. This is it. He's the anti-Marcinko. You know, the he's the he's not boastful. He's not. Uh, um, he never never stretched the truth on anything that he ever did. Um, uh, partly because he just never talked about what he did. I mean, he. I managed to talk to, you know, I may, I interviewed a lot of people for the book. Um, and I'd always find a way to, you know, convince somebody to, to talk to me. Um, uh, I, when I, when I finally was able to track Gallagher down, uh, I, you know, I, I kind of took a deep breath, dialed the number. Um, he answered the phone. I, I hastily ran through. Hi, this is Ben Milligan. I'm writing a history. That I'm a former SEAL. Blah blah blah. blah you know, trying to get through, like, um, you know, my introduction. Um, tell him, you know, I'm going to be writing about the Seventh Platoon. Would love to hear your perspective. I've talked to many of your teammates. I've talked to Pete Peterson. I've talked to Roy Matthews. I've talked to you know all these guys. Um, would love to get your perspective um, if you have time. And he, I hear, t- takes a pause and he goes, I don't think I want to do that. Then he hangs up. All the work that I had done. That was that, huh? That was it. That was your interview. That was it. Did you ever get anything else out of him? Nope. Never did. Talked to everybody. I mean, everyone in his orbit. Um, 
learned, I mean, learned as much about him as I've learned about anybody. He had, uh, when you were reading through that, you know, there was stuff that didn't make the book. Like when I say he's essentially an orphan, I mean, he's essentially an orphan. And I, I hope that, you know, a reader or a listener, you know, has this, you know, some sense of what that means. Like his childhood was nothing less than heartbreaking. His father abandoned uh, him uh, uh, and his sister, him and his brother and his sister to a, uh, um, and, and their mother who uh, had tuberculosis, uh, essentially to a, a sanatorium. When the mother died, um, both uh, um, Bob and his sister were placed in two separate uh, orphanages. Um, Bob, who uh, at the time I believe was only around four years old, his sister was uh, two and a half, and they were so close, inseparable, that every night Bob would escape uh, his dormitory in the orphanage, sneak across this really, really wide expanse of, uh, of field between the girls' dormitory, sneak into the girls' dorm, and sneak into her bed just so she wouldn't have to sleep alone. And this is when he was four years old? Yeah. How did you get this information? From his niece, who was essentially raised like... I mean, not, I don't know if he, she was very close to mm-hmm. her uncle. Um, he, uh, but he had, he, I mean, it wasn't just the war that, you know, made him, or just combat that, that made him, uh, you know, insular and, um, you know, shut off from everybody. He was, he, I think, you know, the fates kind of contributed, you know, to, to create that person. And he was, not a broken person, but he had a real hard time relating to, to folks. His, you know, he's had a you know a bad relationship with his own children. Um, uh, his uh, was estranged from his wife. His wife never divorced him, um, but he was estranged from her. Um, and he, you know, he had a just a really you know tough time. I think the only person that he was really close to in life, aside from you know his teammates, uh, aside from you know somebody like Pete Peterson. Um, was his sister. Um, As a side note, uh, this last muster uh, down at Fort Pierce, they had, you know, because of COVID, have you ever been to Fort Pierce when they do the muster? I haven't been to the muster, but but I know about the ashes swim, but tell tell everyone, that's awesome. So they they were doing an ashes swim uh, every year at Fort Pierce. um, Once a year they will do uh, an ashes swim. So uh, if anyone... Uh, connected to NSW has died in the previous year, and they would like their ashes to be uh, committed to the the ocean. Uh, they will they, they do a sunrise uh, swim uh, out into the uh, Atlantic, uh, and two of your teammates will escort your ashes out into the sea, and they'll release uh, release their ashes. So I'd never been to one of these things. I'd heard about them. Uh, this year, I, I was uh, invited down to uh, to give a talk on the history of the teams, and uh, they asked me if I would, you know, participate the next morning in one of these, you know, swims. Uh, I knew Pete Peterson was going to be there. I met, you know, I interviewed Pete a number of times for the book, and um, uh, I knew that he was going to be swimming Bob's ashes. Bob died uh, several months before, um, and he was going to be swimming Bob's ashes. Uh, in addition to Bob's ashes, there were two other members of the Seventh Platoon uh, that were whose ashes were going to be swum out. Um, so I, you know, I told Pete, if you need, you know, a swim buddy for this, I'm happy to happy to join you. And he was more than happy to accept. So the next morning, we're out there, you know, 4 a.m. They want us to all muster, um, you know, kind of back by the museum, away from the ocean. 
um, and it's November and it's pretty cold. It's in probably the high 40s. Um, and, you know, we're just out there in swim trunks with, you know, flippers and, you know, they're going down the roster. Okay. All right. Here's a, here's a name, you know, uh, here, uh, Bob, Bob Gallagher, who's swimming Bob, you know, Pete, you know, he's in his mid eighties at this point. He raises his hand. He's, you know, got, uh, um, he's an old, he's an older guy. Um, but he's like, I'm, I'm swimming Bob. It's like, all right, who's swimming with Pete? I was like, I shot my hand up so fast. I'm, I'm swimming with Pete. Um, but after, you know, you get your assignments, you know, right, you know, before sunrise, they march you out. And I was not expecting, you know, sort of the spectacle of what was out there. They had a shadow box set up for uh, every person whose ashes were being swum out. So about 40 different uh, shadow boxes with a, you know, flag. And then uh, behind that, you know, facing the ocean, probably about 50, 50 people. Uh, per shadow box uh, of family members that were all assembled there to watch uh, their loved ones' ashes being swum out to uh, swim out to sea. They had a you know bagpipes. They had a navy uh, band. They had a flag team. Um, it was it was a huge huge collection. Thousands of people on the beach. Uh, they do a flag ceremony. Um, so they kind of they they uh, position the swimmers, you know, uh, behind the shadow box facing the family. Uh, and they they go down one by one, and they'll do a you know presentation of the flag to the family. Now they had you know set us up, me and you know me and Pete behind Bob's ashes, but right next to Bob's family, they had um, uh, uh, Roy Matthews, who was also in the Seven Platoon, and they also had Ron Yaw. Ron Yaw's family was right there too, and they were both members of the Seven Platoon. And I'm standing there with Pete, who was you know, their OIC, you know, in, uh, in Vietnam. And you can see Pete's getting, Pete's getting emotional here. And I don't blame him. I would have been too. And uh, I'm starting to think, you know, seeing Pete, and they, they finally, you know, they, after the flag presentation, they hand you the ashes and they hand, you know, hand Bob's ashes, you know, to us. I don't, Bob's at least 20 pounds. I mean, the, the, the bag of ashes, it's pretty heavy. Um, I'm looking at, you know, Pete, and they finally tell us, you know, about face, start marching into the ocean. We start backing up. We're, guys are getting online, you know, um, you know, putting fins on. Pete's having, you know, a little bit of a tough time getting those those fins on. I'm starting to see the, the line, you know, kind of edge away from us a little bit. Like, we're starting to be like, all right, we're, me and Pete are starting to get left behind here a little bit. Like, I'm starting to wonder if, you know, the, the waves are pretty big for Florida. I've never seen waves that big in Florida, but we're starting to back into it. I'm looking at Pete and I'm like, Pete, we don't have to do this, man. We can find somebody else to, to swim, you know, Bob out. We, we'll take care of this. If you can't, you can't do this. Pete looks at me and he goes, I, I think there's really only one thing to do here. And, uh, it's like, all right. I start to grab his arm. Like we're going to head back in. He takes off. Like he dies through that wave. <laughs> he went from being like an 80, three-year-old man to a 25-year-old frogman like that. I couldn't keep up with him. I'm doing everything I can to swim. I'm dragging Bob <laughs> going through the surf. And uh, finally we get out there through the breakers. Sun comes up. Uh, command comes out. I hand, uh, I hand Bob to, uh, to Pete. Pete lets him go. I mean, the whole, whole thing, the whole 10 years of work, uh, on this book, that it was it was worth it in that moment. Mm. Whew, man, uh, 
I mean, you, you can see it. Like, you see it there. Like, you see, like, I mean, even the guys, I, I've, I've been talking to guys that are, you know, from that era, guys that aren't even mentioned in the book, but they are, you know, to a man, they are, you know, they all express, you know, how pleased they are that, you know, Bob's uh, contribution, you know, Bob Gallagher, who's, you know, never, you know, never, you know, uh, touted his own achievements. Um, I mean, if anybody's going to, you know, uh, capture the, you know, the attention of that era, I mean, it should be him. It's an interesting thing about him too that, I mean, he like I, I say he's the anti-Marcinko. He's a, he's he's not you know he's not a. I mean, he he had such pride in the rest of the the Navy, like in in a way that I you know I when I set out to write this book, I always assumed that I'd be writing a book that you know confirmed all the myths about us that we did all of this ourselves, you know, and then the Navy you know was always the you know the the branch of you know the the parent command that was trying to keep us you know assigned to the water. And I found the opposite to be true. And then when I discover Bob Gallagher, Bob Gallagher's lasting legacy, if anything, is you know how much pride he had, not just in the SEAL teams, but in his parent service too. He left the SEAL teams. One of the last things he did, he took a um, a commission, um, which no, I don't know that anybody I, I knows about it. But he he took a commission uh, as a uh, as a warrant officer. And one of the first things he did was he or he had to leave the SEAL teams. He had to go to an aircraft carrier, and. Uh, and and work on this aircraft carrier with fleet sailors, and every every seal that he ever met afterwards, he to a man he told them it was one of the things he was most proud of. He was able to see you know the U.S. Navy at work uh, and see how committed you know the, the, his fellow shipmates and sailors were. You know they weren't seals. Maybe these guys couldn't uh, you know couldn't couldn't run and couldn't do the things that frogmen can do. They still had pride in their work, and they still, you know, had a mission to do, and and he was, you know, every bit as proud of that as he was of his, you know, career in the teams. When when did you? What stood out? Um, how did you get to that that platoon? You know, I I, um, I spent you know a long time, a long time trying to figure out where that transition had occurred. You know, that uh, transition from. Where the SEAL platoons were, you know, uh, patrol and ambushers uh, to, you know, capture kill commandos. And, you know, Marcinko, he makes all these claims in his, you know, Rogue Warrior book um, that it was his platoon, that it was the 8th platoon that made that transition. Um, and I went through and I, I, I was gathering as many, you know, barn dance cards or after action reports as I could. Um, and, you know, I was going through operation by operation, platoon by platoon, trying to see like, you know, who had made that transition. I went through eighth platoon, you know, among others. I was, you know, I was plotting insertion points, extraction points, actions on objective uh, points for every one of their missions. And you know, after you know doing three months worth of Marcinko's missions, I realized every claim that he had made in Rogue Warrior is bullshit. Like. What, which is sad because, you know, what his platoon did was totally commendable. It was, fan, it was incredible, like, what his platoon did. And their contribution to Chow Duck during the Tet Offensive, amazing. But, you know, he, he was making, you know, outlandish claims and, you know, and not only burnishing his legacy but doing it at the expense of other folks, too. I couldn't understand why he was. Um, 
but I mean, I found the seven platoon because I was just methodically going through these platoons, you know, platoon at a time, operation by at a time. And I noticed in the seven platoons, you know, this, they, they started out like everybody else. You know, they, they got to, you know, Vietnam and they would get a little bit of intel and they would go out, they'd set an ambush, uh, they'd, uh, um, they'd patrol to contact. Um, but by you know, the three month mark in their deployment, they're, 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 Operations take a noticeable turn, and this is when they meet uh, their interpreter uh, Min, who's a, a, a former or who's a Vietnamese sailor, and they enlist him into the organization. He's not just an interpreter, though; he's like a he's a source of intel. Like he's uh, he's able to connect them to um, you know institutions in the country that you know provide them a wealth of information. And then they start going out, and they they're not just going out for Viet Cong; they're going out for Viet Cong with names. They know who they're going after, so you know that the seven seven platoon makes that makes that turn and by the end of that uh, platoon uh, by this uh, by the by the summer of 1968 uh, the platoon that that followed the the uh, the seventh platoon uh, they're you know they're they're doing what the seventh platoon did but only, but better, better but, yeah. I mean Rudy Bosch you know rolls in with the 10th platoon and every platoon then it, it just it franchises at that point every platoon whether it's a seal uh, an East Coast platoon or a West Coast platoon they're all doing it they're all, you know, relying on this capture-kill mission. And it doesn't really start to trickle off until, uh, you know, the, the war really starts to uh, um, uh, drive uh, the, the end of uh, uh, the, the, the funnel. The, the, the money starts to shut off. You know, they stop getting, you know, rounds for their uh, uh, M16s. They, they, they don't get any more gas money for their Jeeps. They take Jeeps away from them. They make them start doing watch standing uh, on, on various bases that they're on. So all the intel collection that they've been doing up to that point in the war, it, it's starting to get, you know, they're not able to do it like they were in like, you know, 69, 70, 71. So. Well, first of all, you want to you want to get some seals mad, make them stand watch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I read that. These guys get so mad. We had we, we had uh, uh, to stand watch. We had to stand watch on people we captured, actually, when my first deployment to Iraq. And you would have thought, like, I'd say, hey, guys, get jocked up. We got a QRF to do wherever. But get your gear on. We're going into freaking hell. Guys would be like, cool. But you say, hey, I know we just did that mission. <laughs> you got to stand watch at 5 o'clock in the morning. Are you kidding me? <laughs> He's so pissed off. <laughs> Uh, I would take that. I would take the, the two o'clock in the morning to four o'clock. My, myself and the and the AOIC would take the worst watch of the night, the one that you had to wake up in the middle of the night. You know, the other ones you could kind of sleep until. Uh, no, not us. But guys don't like staying and watch. The other thing that's interesting about this is, you know, having talking to having having talked to a number of SOG guys, man, they were so compartmentalized they would get like no turnover. Things would happen, they would never right. tell anybody. Right. And I mean, I'm talking like lesson learned from an operation, hey, don't use this type of weapon in this situation, they'd never hear that. Hmm. It was, well, not never, but it was very limited to, to how much they would be able to pass on or that they would receive. That's it would all be kind of centralized, like maybe there'd be one guy that would debrief them. Hmm. Uh, so the fact that the, the SEALs were sharing, hey, this is a better way to do operations, here's how we can make a uh, huge impact, that's important from a leadership perspective when you're out there working in a company, in a business, in a team, when you learn something, pass it on so everyone can benefit. The other thing that was like, I mean, totally benefited the SEALs at this point is, you know, this 
uh, policy that the rest of the military had of individual rotation. They thought that having, you know, uh, you know, oh, yeah. constant, you know, presence there, you know, was, was easier to, you know, keep all the equipment there, but we'll just, you know, feed guys onesie twosies into, yeah. into a unit. It's horrible. It's terrible. Yeah. You know, they get to country, nobody knows them, nobody trusts them. They don't know anybody else. Nobody wants to train them. Never, never worked never together. Trained. They never yeah. worked together. The Green Berets did that. The Lerps did that. I mean, all oh. these special units that we call special, you know, they are learning together as they operate. All They're the time. All the time. Never and then ends. the best guys are getting pulled out. Whereas the SEAL teams, they were always deploying as a group. Mm -hmm. They were coming home as a group. They were training together and they would redeploy as a group. Yeah. And by the way, you get turnover operations. It's not like this. Everyone shows up and now no one knows what to do. You get turnover operations. Right. There was a period, two week yeah. period. Yeah. So it's not like you're, wait, doesn't it kind of make sense to have new guys cycle in? And that way you still got some experience guys? No, it doesn't. Got to work together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on to chapter 15. And I think this might be Echo's favorite title right here. <laughs> The Navy's skeleton key to inland combat and the final against the current achievements in the war's ebb tide that exposed the SEALs' preeminence as the U.S. military's go anywhere commandos. <laughs> I even got you laughing at this, Ben. Your editor. Well, I, in my editor's defense, I'm the one that wrote the, <laughs> the titles. <laughs> Uh, but as you said, it kind of explains us, you know, what's going on here a little bit. Uh, let me go to the book. Within two months of his arrival, Zumwalt, that's the Admiral Zumwalt strategy, Zumwalt's strategy had pulled swift boats from the coastal blockade to take over the PBR patrols in the lower delta and had reclaimed some 90% of the vessels assigned to the mobile riverine force to push into bloody alley of the Parrot's Beak, that portion of Cambodia that stabbed the insurgency supply lines like a knife into the Delta's heart. With Zumwalt's arrival, the SEALs went from being the fleet's prodigal stepchild raiders to the fleet's skeleton key to inland opportunities, opportunities for Navy boats, Navy ships, Navy fighters, Navy helicopters, Navy gunships, Navy intelligence officers, even Navy Seabees. To goose the Navy's involvement in SEAL operations, Zumwalt, always wearing forest green fatigues and occasionally accompanied by a camera and crew and reporters, routinely dropped in on his platoons and always posed a variant of the same question, how can I help? In short order, that help was showing up in piasters for hoi chans and interpreters, Navy jeeps to meet with sources, daily grocery drops by the Navy's helicopter transports. After the friendly fire death of Lieutenant Junior Grade David Nichols, Zumwalt took less than three days to invest, in, invest one SEAL compound with an actual Navy f physician. All told, it was the kind of self-serving that helped infuse the SEALs with an even greater operational capacity, so much so that within six months of Zumwalt's arrival, the headquarters of the SEALs task group commander in Vietnam was finally upgraded from a cluttered desk at CTF-116 to an entire Kwanzaa hut. I need 15 more, 
20 more, 100 more SEALs remembered three war veteran frogman Frank Kane of Zumwalt's repeated calls to increase his compliment. When such requests collided with the reality of SEAL's actual manning numbers, no levels nowhere close to the Green Berets, Zumwalt even enlisted the efforts and advice of the commander of U.S. Naval Forces in the Philippines, none other than the bullfrog himself, Admiral Draper Kaufman. So that's a huge turning point when you start getting this massive support from Zumwalt. Yeah. I mean the the seals are no longer like a, they're they're not, no longer at the fringe of the navy's operations. They're the um, they're the they're the harpoon uh, that you know not only is you know striking you know into the heart of the enemy, but just like a harpoon, it's attached to a rope. It's pulling the rest of the navy inland. Yeah, that that little detail that you got in there of Zumwalt always wearing camis or always wearing fatigues. That's just like. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you're always on the lookout for whatever, you know, that little detail that's going to, you know, it's going to say something else to your reader. Or, you know, you, I mean, just, just the fact that, you know, his, <clears throat> his sideburns alone, like, convey to the rest of his sailors that, hey, I'm cool. I'm cool like you. <laughs> like, you know, like, uh, I mean, up to that point in, uh, you know, in the Navy, um, uh, there's no beards allowed. I mean, when when he becomes CNO, you know what's back in you know back in fashion in the U.S. Navy? Beards. He brings it all back. <laughs> but I mean, he's he's totally you know he he's a he's a I mean, he has the uh, bona fides to do it. He's um, he, he, he's a junior officer all through the uh, through World War II. He's one of the only sailors uh, to to take a ship up uh, the Wampo River into Shanghai. He actually sees what Sako is doing. At the tail end of World War II, he turns over, or he uh, does a prisoner exchange with with Phil Bucklew uh, in 1945. And he's seen, even if he's not participated in it, he's gotten a glimpse of what the Navy's capable of. And when he gets there to Vietnam, he knows the Navy could be doing more. Um, and then, you know, not not only is his role as the commander of naval forces in Vietnam important, but he's the one that ultimately becomes the chief of naval operations. He's you thought the seals were, you know, important before. I mean, when he becomes a CNO, I mean, you're vaulting the seals' uh, preeminence uh, with w- along with him. So, pretty neat. The Zumwalt class ships, USS oh, yeah. Mikey Monsoor. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. Just, I mean, that that connection is, yeah, it's it's so cool. Uh, <laughs> how about as this is, you know, you got trying to put together like. Bob Carey's mission. How, was, yeah. how hard was that? It's not uh, Bob Carey's mission. Is it's sort of um, it's sort of a one off. Like, and I thought you know, I thought about focusing on on Bob Carey's mission for the chapter, but it's 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 not a it's not like an indicator of like the Navy's inland adventurism because it's right on the coast. Mm-hmm. It's right in Natrang Bay. What uh, what signifies that it's um, important in you know like the um, the seals sort of like elbowing out its competitors is the fact that it's right around the corner from 
where the Green Berets are operating. Like that's their that's their corner of the war. So yeah, it's coastal, but it should have been in the Green Berets territory. And here comes, you know, SEAL Team One uh, along with CTF one fifteen. CTF one fifteen is the coastal squadron, um, or the squ- the coastal task force. Uh, they get their first seals, and what do they do with them? They start sending them everywhere. Um, and it is it's one of the. I mean, you look at that that mission, and it is. It's so different from what the, the rest of uh, the SEAL uh, teams are doing in the Mekong Delta. Um, but it's so indicative of, um, you know, this, this transformation that the SEALs have gone through. They're not uh, a, you know, patrol and ambush force anymore. Now they're going after individual Viet Congs so they can capture them, flip them, uh, and, or ransack them for, you know, other locations. Um, so the whole mission is not a, this is an entrepreneurial, this is not a, you know, uh, uh, let's see. Let's see what we get. They know who they're going for. They've got good information, and they, you know, they plan um, a really cool uh, special operation to go get them. Did you feel tempted to get sucked into the Sea Wolves at all? Oh yeah. Because oh yeah, I've had the Sea Wolves. I had to. I had to keep them at arm's length. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't have time. I was like, I, I would find. I, I found so. I had. I had a lot of documents about the Sea Wolves too. I was like. Ugh. Man, yeah. and there—I mean, Navy, uh, just the uh, Navy—you um, know—gunship squadrons alone. I mean, they've gone through, you know, very, very similar, you know, um, uh, you know, experience of let's bring them back, let's da- disband them again, oh, yeah. bring them back, disband yeah. them again. Like, well, you, you and I experienced that. I mean, we had right. the the reserve squadrons that were yep. working pretty much as the sea wolves did they were like at right, the yeah. beck and call of the seals. Yep. You know, my first deployment to Iraq, it was we work with those guys. All the time, they were our full support, and they were fantastic, fantastic. Uh, but the Sea Wolves in Nam, man, oh. commissioned in Vietnam and decommissioned—the only squadron ever to be commissioned in combat and decommissioned in combat. There's that one story. They they they're running out of fuel. There's a platoon on the ground. They're like, "We're not leaving." One bird's like, "Hey, we're not leaving." We'll just run out of gas. So they they have enough gas to get in there and grab the last few guys, but they don't have enough gas to make it back to base. They land in the middle of a rice rice paddy somewhere, and they're using an ammo can to siphon fuel into an ammo can and pour it into the Huey to get that thing back to base, bro. These guys, when you talk to and the Vietnam guys that the Vietnam seals I've had on the podcast, like you, they they just lo- absolutely without question love the Sea Wolf guys because those Sea Wolf guys, they took so much risk to support oh, yeah. the seals on the ground. I, you know, when I was, uh, I, I, there were a couple episodes when I was, um, I would come, I, I would I would see like a report of an army slick who, you know, it said, well, we're not going to land or something like that. And then the report of a sea wolf pilot saying, well, if you don't land, I'm going to shoot you down. <laughs> and I was, I was a little skeptical of that. I was like, I don't know if that's, that's, uh, that's cricket. And then I found another one. I was like, I'm wondering if this happened maybe a couple of times. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, it made it, made it into the book. I mean, not to, you know, ever diminish what those, uh, army slick pilots did. They were, I mean, they were doing the Lord's work too, but yeah. And then, and then, as you're trying to get like the last three years of the war, yeah, to compress that. How hard was that? It was tough. I, and I, I had to, you know, um, I realized uh, that I made my point. I, I knew that you know I'd accomplished what I set forth to, to to establish, which is you know the moment when the seals became what we are today. You know, um, so now all I'm all I was trying to do is just kind of one, you know, 
uh, further solidify, you know, how that had happened. And, you know, I, I discovered some stuff along the way, like, you know, the, um, the ninth platoon or the ninth division being, you know, the ninth, one of the, the most interesting things to, you know, show, you know, how the, the Navy had become, you know, so, you know, important in the Mekong Delta is, you know, finally the ninth division starts copying, uh, the seals, the, the lerps, um, start to, uh, deconflict, uh, areas, um, and take them away from the seals and the seals are, you know, they want to go out and, you know, do this raid and they can't because the army is already there. Um, and it, it, the very good chance that if the war had continued on, you know, for a little bit longer, uh, that, uh, the army would have, you know, taken all the Navy's missions and the seals would have had to either move someplace else, adapt again. I'm not sure what would have happened, but, um, there's a good chance that the army's, uh, special operations would have gotten a lot better, a lot, a lot better, a lot faster. Uh, but they pulled the ninth division out of the country altogether, leaving the SEAL teams um, as the only all-American commando force in the entire Fourth Corps um, for two years. Which, I mean, talk about opportunity. You know, going back to the um, the Sea Wolves and them being answering the call. You know, that's uh, uh, something that I I learned out of the gate when I got to SEAL teams was that hey, in Nam. If it was a platoon in trouble or if it was a down pilot, we were going bright light, no questions asked. That's a that's that's a that's an attitude that stuck through, you know, till this day. If something's going on like that, we're going. I I, I mean I and whatever I don't know if it was pulled from, you know, the sea wolves, but it, I mean, we, we saw it carry through, I mean, in our time. I mean, the uh, <laughs> SEAL Team 10, I mean, they came to the, you know, rescue of, uh, you know, their SDV squad. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, uh, the Gold Squadron SEALs, I mean, they, they were on their way to, you know, come to the aid of Army Rangers. Yeah. You, were they in trouble? Yeah. Was it dangerous? Yep. You gonna go? We sure are. Yep. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's if, it, if <coughs> Americans are in trouble. I mean, you're gonna go. Um. I mean, that's you know when you, when you start talking about Tommy Norris and his activities. Yeah, I mean that's that's, a, that's a, exactly right. Like you, I mean, how much did Tommy risk? Uh, you know, to come <laughs> to, to rescue somebody who he never knew. I think 11 other Americans had died attempting to, uh, to rescue, you know, those, those two, ba- either the pilot and the navigator. Uh, he, um, and not, I mean, he had, you know, he was there with uh, his Vietnamese Rangers. I mean, like I, the thing that never, you know, ceases to amaze me is the fact that the SEAL teams were the recipient of all of that accumulated knowledge, of all that, um, of all that legacy, you know, you know, Darby's legacy and the Cabanatuan legacy and the Point to Hawk, all of that, you know, all that knowledge got compressed into the Ranger School, and there are no Rangers, so the SEAL teams became the biggest, uh, you know, collection of Ranger School graduates in the U.S. military, um, and then you know, not only. You know, is there that connection with uh, Tommy Norris, you know, leading Vietnamese Rangers? But uh, the, um, 
the seals at um, uh, the the seven platoon seals uh, during the Tet Offensive at Mito. The uh, Bob Gallagher leads a squad of seals, uh, you know, through the streets of Mito to uh, to help call in uh, airstrikes for the the stranded uh, Vietnamese seals or Vietnamese rangers. Um, but yeah, Bob Gall- or uh, you know, Tommy Norris coming, you know, risking everything, and and his he and his rangers had undergone, you know, a uh, pretty pretty terrible uh, mortar uh, attack the night before he went out on that raid or went out on that rescue mission uh, I don't I can't remember off the top of my head how many of his of his Rangers were killed in that attack but I mean combat ineffective he only had a handful of Rangers left and him and kit you know still decide there's an American in trouble we're going to get him it's just remarkable to me he goes out and um, talking to so you ask the question, how do you compress, you know, the, essentially what's a three-year period of history into a single, you know, 15-page chapter? And, you know, you have two of, you know, the most, you know, iconic SEAL missions of the war that occurred during this period, or not two, but multiple. I mean, you've got, you know, Bob Carey's mission, you've got uh, Tommy Norris's mission, you've got uh, Thornton's mission to rescue Norris. Um, at some point I had the idea, like, I can't cover all of that. Um, and it's not, not necessarily, it's not outside the scope of what I was doing, but it's redundant to what I've already shown. So I don't need to do that, but I do want to cover it in some, and, and, you know, pay it a nod or, uh, you know, um, describe it in a way that other folks probably haven't. And I had read, you know, the books on, uh, Tommy, uh, and, and Mike Thornton, and I'd read uh, the book on, um, Tommy rescuing, um, or the most recent books on uh, those events. And the things that I noticed that they didn't cover were the Medal of Honor ceremonies uh, for each event. And I thought, you know, wouldn't that be an interesting way to, you know, wrap up the book with this, you know, with Tommy Norris's uh, Medal of Honor ceremony? Because Mike Thornton's Medal of Honor ceremony happened several years earlier. Um, Tommy's doesn't happen until 1976. Vietnam War is over, fall of Saigon has happened. Um, you can capture all of this here, th- this history that's happened if you, you know, use that that moment as a vehicle. So that's what I did. I uh, I contacted you know Tommy Norris, and he was, um, you know, who I con I who I, I Mark Robbins, who was on that deployment, uh, who lost his eye yeah. um, to a, a machine gunner's bullet. Um, Tommy had been uh, Tommy had um, helped counsel him through you know the. Um, you're losing the eye, and um, so Mark had Tommy's phone number. So I just cold called him one day, got him on the phone, and um, had a you know kind of kind of a series of talks with him. But I mean, he just couldn't have been you know just a more accessible, more um, more friendly guy, just a humble humble guy. You know, considering everything he's been through, everything he's done, and you know what was funny is he always you know he he didn't minimize what he. I mean, he did minimize what he did, but he also, like, was so proud of, you know, his post-war, you know, career in the FBI. Uh-huh. He had this, like, I mean, he had a, he had a, I mean, in addition to his, you know, SEAL career, he had this legendary FBI career. He was, you know, he was a undercover agent. Um, he, he was going after international terrorists as an undercover agent, and his, his, um, his cover was that of like a, a one-eyed arms dealer and nobody ever <laughs> doubted him. Like, uh, he was a, um, 
he was, you know, he went after white supremacists in Idaho. Uh, he, uh, one of the best stories that I, uh, I heard about him was that, uh, um, he was up on a wire, um, and he had been, uh, listening to this white supremacist for, uh, a few months. Um, and he knew that this guy won, uh, had this, uh, this big Rottweiler that it was his pride and joy. He loved this dog. Um, and he was taking him to the vet, um, uh, for some, you know, not, not serious issue, but he was going to leave the the dog there overnight. So Tommy, you know, having listened to this guy's voice for like a month, he could imitate him pretty well. So, uh, the night that the dog was there, Tommy makes a phone call to the vet. He's like, Hey, uh, while the dog's there, why don't you go ahead and neuter him? I don't know if it's true. I don't know. I don't know if this is an accurate story, but this is all. It didn't get in the book because I couldn't verify it. The other story that I heard, and this was from a Vietnam era SEAL who was one of the first team leaders at HRT. So he had. Uh, so Tommy wasn't one of the founders of HRT, but he was one of the plank owners. He was one of the first guys to go through uh, the HRT selection. Um, and uh, so HRT was in, they were conducting one of their very first operations in 1985. It was against a, or they were trying to uh, apprehend a, um, um, a Puerto Rican nationalist who had, it was a semi, it was a, essentially it was a terrorist. Um, but they were conducting a, I believe, an arrest warrant. And they were uh, going up this guy, the, the stairs to this guy's uh, house. He leans over the balcony with a machine gun and stitches the entire assault team. Uh, and shoots one operator in the eye. Um, they, the, the team backs out, and, uh, you know, Charles, or Sandy Pr- Prudy, who's a, a Silver Star SEAL himself, uh, the, uh, the team leader uh, for, for HRT, um, he's trying to, um, you know, come up with a plan to go in and get this guy. Tommy comes running up to Sandy. He goes, Sandy, I got a plan to get uh, get this guy. He's like, all right, Tommy, what's the plan? How about I run upstairs and kill him? <laughs> <laughs> Jack, um, <laughs> freaking outstanding. Uh, I don't know if we could find a better place to wrap it up than that. Uh, the book is awesome. Um, you know, we've we've been in and out of different stories. Uh, we not even touching what's in this book. This this book is just absolutely filled with incredible stuff. Um, it's an incredible story. So get the book. Uh, Echo, you got anything? I don't. You sure? I'm sure. All right. Ben, I've kept you captive. Speaking of hostage rescue, uh, I think you're going to get busted out of here in a second. Somebody's probably looking for you. So uh, appreciate you coming. I can't thank you enough. This is a, a, this is a treat for me. Anytime I get to talk about this stuff is, uh, is great. Thanks for the support of the book, too. This is I, – I can't thank you enough. Well, uh the amount of effort that you put in this book, the product is just outstanding. And I can't even fathom that there would be someone else that would go through the effort that you did to to do this. You know, you're like, you got issues, dude. <laughs> you yeah, got no, issues. That's true, that, but so do you. And oh, I, I do too. No, I, know. I mean, you think about true. it. Like, uh, uh, leaving the teams is a, is a traumatic event. That's traumatic, which you have proved. Look at this. <laughs> Look at the, I mean, the, the infrastructure that's surrounding you at this point. It's a, you have to do something to account for that trauma. 
And I always used to think that I was immune to, you know, you know, the leaving, leaving the teams and I, I was never going to, you know, fill it with anything else. And, you know, I'd never gotten any tattoos. I'd never, you know, I didn't get into triathlons or anything like that. Um, I just had this huge blind spot creeping up on me that I didn't even know about. And, uh, once, once this thing found me, I mean, I was, I was hostage to it. Like there wasn't anything. I mean, it was, it dominated my life. I mean, it was, you know, I don't, I try to really, you know, curtail the amount of time that I put into it. I'd only work in the morning I'd work in the evening, you know, after the kids were in bed. Um, but what I found was that I would leave off uh, writing or researching, um, and then throughout the day, this thing would just be on a loop in my head, mm-hmm. and I couldn't break away. <laughs> and it was like that for ten years. When you when it got published, were you already thinking about your next book, or were you just like, you know, I need no. a breather? So I, I, when I was writing the book, I had kind of a, I, I was, I, if I wasn't thinking about a paragraph or a specific. Um, you know, issue. I, I had this sort of mental loop going on in my head, and it was always like, "What's the point? What's the point? What's the point? What's the point? What's the point of this book? What's the point of this chapter? What's the point of this sentence? What am I doing? What? What's the point? What's the point? What's the purpose?" And that that question was always on a loop in my head. And then when I turned the final manuscript in, and I was done, and I didn't have that question to think about, I. I was a little lost <laughs> and I found myself like I took a walk in my neighborhood and I was just, and all of a sudden I found myself, um, sort of, uh, subconsciously thinking I started to say, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? And I just, and I just, I, and I've fortunately through a lot of counseling, no, <laughs> uh, through some distance from the book, I've been able to, you know, take a take a pause and I kind of gave myself you know mentally a year you know from the date of publication uh, until you know so from a year so July 20th is when it came out um, I'm giving myself till July 20th of 2022 before I really start you know buckling down or start beating myself up about what's next so <laughs> I'm a psycho because when yeah. my once I get done as soon as I get done and turn the final manuscript, well, first of all, before that even happens, I'm already plotting. I already got that next book. I'm, one of them has bubbled to the surface, and I'm ready to rock and roll. And so, by the time the book comes out, when, I, when, I, when, my, when my, one of my books gets published, the art, other one is already it's already being formulated and kind of being written, huh. which is really annoying because I also have like the repeat loop in my head, like, "Oh, this could be good. This could be good." And as soon as that, I go, "There's no, there's no moment to go." Ah. Cool. No, no, yeah, no. Yeah, so I mean, there was maybe a uh, an afternoon. I did reward myself at the end of each chapter. I would get, I would get drunk, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wouldn't go out drinking or anything like that. I never did. I would just I would, when you got done with the chapter, would it be like that's the rough chapter, or is that like, hey, I mean, yeah, it was the first draft. Okay. I knew that I was coming back. For yeah, it. yeah. Um, but I, I mean, just getting, you know putting that flag in the ground and being like, I'm done with that chapter. Like I felt like, you know, even if I knew that it wasn't perfect, mm-hmm. even if I knew if I was going to have to come back, at least I knew the meat was there. The meat was there. The content was there. And, and the, and I, if I had let myself, you know, get that far, then I knew what the point of the chapter was. I knew why that chapter was important. And I knew the point that I was trying to make. So at least I had the, you know, the bones of the chapter, the structure was good. 
you know, whether or not I was going to come back and add stuff on, you know, the, uh, the, um, the Cuban frogmen or something like that, mm-hmm. or, um, uh, gosh, where are you leaning towards your next book? You must be, you must have an idea in that. I have an idea, but it's, it's very private. <laughs> private. All right. You said free. no one's going to steal any of your ideas. I, it's not that because no one has enough time. <laughs> no, no, or no, it's commitment. Not, it has nothing to do with that. It's that I need. I need that in my head. I, I, if I say it out loud for for whatever reason, it will. It'll be like um, I, I need the motivation of it. I need the the unfinished uh, quality of it to to motivate oh, me to. That's one thing I noticed is in uh, seal training. Uh, Guys that were like saying like, oh, I'm in SEAL training, I'm in SEAL training, I'm in SEAL training. Those guys like didn't seem to make it. Yeah. So maybe it's the same kind of thing for you. You don't want to get it out there because that's. I don't. It's almost like you get rewarded for it. You get yeah, a little yeah. mini reward when right. someone goes, oh, wow, that sounds awesome. You right. already got paid. Yeah, You're not allowing bit. yourself to get little paid. Bit. That's a good move. I like it. That's right. I like it. Don't allow yourself to get paid, man. Don't go credit. Don't take credit. So you're not even taking any credit from me, from nope. Echo. You're just taking nothing from us. No, I just you have to earn it over <laughs> here. What's in here? I was gonna say because no one's gonna take your idea about some random document written in 1953 about some you know new nuclear warhead that <laughs> led to whatever. How'd you know? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome, man. Thanks for coming down. Um, you're welcome back here anytime. I've, I've got some ideas in my head for like some kind of a something to do with some sort of podcast scenario with you. I don't even know what it is yet, but. Yes. Yeah. Agree. We'll, we'll work something out like that. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm committing. Oh, so right on. Yeah. See, well, you know, I kind of feel like I already did it because I just said it. So it's kind of like I got the reward. <laughs> hey, I can just Half move on done. now. Yeah. This, you know, it's pretty much done. Pretty uh, much. Hey, if you want to support this podcast, get some Jocko Fuel. We supported this podcast today, racking and stacking some Jocko Fuel. It's been a long day, even for Echo Charles, who's usually in the cruise mode over there. Yeah. Are your vocal cords tired? <laughs> <laughs> I handled that. I handled uh, Get some... Get some stuff from JockoFuel.com. Get some milk. I'm so see see we haven't eaten today, yeah. so my milk detector is high sensitive. order right now. It's yeah, super yeah, yeah, hype yeah, right yeah, now. I, I don't want anything else. I don't yeah. want a steak. I don't want uh, a cheeseburger. I don't want a turkey leg. I want yeah. milk right now. Plus, as far as your macros go, you're gonna need that help this yeah, late in the day. Yeah. Did I go catabolic earlier? You could. I did you, jack some steel this you're morning. You're risking that big yeah. time right now. We're not gonna let that happen. When we get home, we get some milk milk up in the system. <laughs> yep. And so Same. we're good there. So check that out, jockofuel.com. Go to go to Wawa if you want to get some of these drinks that are freaking awesome. Cause I, you know, did we get jittery today? Did no. I get jittery? Did you no. get jittery? No, no, you felt smooth. All day. They're all good day. for you too, by the way. Good, 100% good for you're you. You're not going to pay any price in the future. You, are you thinking you're going to get like type 2 diabetes because you drank some sugary drink? Because you're not. Because that's sweetened with monk fruit right there. <laughs> it's true. It's true. That's true. what I'm talking about. It's a true statement. <laughs> no uh, I mean, yep. this is my first energy drink. Ever? Yeah, ever. I don't think I've ever had a... Uh, no, yeah. Dang, good move. That's good weird. Move. What do you drink in Iraq? Coffee. Oh, okay, yeah, that'll do it. You're a coffee guy. Uh, vitamin shop too. OriginUSA.com if you want to get some jeans, if you want to get a belt, if you want to get a wallet, if you want to get a pair of boots, if you need a jujitsu gi. Jujitsu's going high right now. It's going high order. Everyone's training. Oh, right? yeah. You're feeling it. I feel it. The yeah. whole world's training. You training, man? Training the jujitsu? No, I don't have time. 
Yeah, you how, how do you freaking do this? sitting in an archive somewhere <laughs> with your nose in a book, dude. I mean, all yeah, the mats. For, for all the fans out there, yeah, I'm training a lot. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, OriginUSA.com. Go get yourself some cool stuff. All of it is made in the United States of America. Look, we spent trying to fight communism. We, 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 we fought against communism, and we're still fighting against communism, but it's, it's not in the jungles anymore. Right now, it's, 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 in the, it's in your wallet. You can give your money to a communist country, literally. You can do that. I recommend you don't. I recommend you don't give money to communism. I recommend you give it to democracy and America and hardworking American people. So we're talking about originusa.com. Go get some freedom, son. <laughs> As opposed to supporting uniquely affordable labor. Oh, that's what, what they called. call slave labor. That's, that's what they called. call slave labor. That's true. Yeah, we're so not down for term. that cause. Also, Jocko Store. Boom. Represent. We're on the path. We're working out. We're lifting. Sometimes we want to represent. You want a shirt that says discipline equals freedom on it. A mm-hmm. hoodie. Hat. The word Good. Shirt locker. Shirt locker. Shirt locker. That's a uniquely unique. <laughs> unique. Sometimes Echo paints him, talks himself <laughs> into a corner. No escape. No, Brad. No, no such escape. thing. No such thing. Either way, though, what that is, it's a different unique shirt with new, unique designs. Very um, unique. Good, <laughs> good feedback on those yeah. ones. Good feedback. On What's those the latest? Can you say what the latest was? What was the last? The This past one, it's April right now. So March was the one that you came up with a long time ago. Everybody must get stoned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that one was controversial. Ben, controversial. Controversial. I made it. We made a shirt. So I heard from the nom guys, one nom guy in particular, was like, yeah, he went to get his gun from the armory after he had been home, and he went to check out his weapon. Someone else had taken it to Vietnam. His stoner came back. So a guy took his stoner on deployment, did a six-month deployment, came back. When he went to pick his weapon up from the armory, etched in the buttstock, it said, everybody must get stoned. And I was like, that's the best <laughs> thing ever. You know, the stoner machine gun, if you don't know, uh, the stoner 63. That's what, the, that's what a, lot of guy, a lot of SEALs carried in Vietnam. And it's a badass weapon, so we made that T-shirt. So you could get a cool T-shirt like that. Some people didn't like it, huh? Well, they, they're scared. They they were they they were uh, thinking we were talking about the marijuana. They they were sensitive to the controversial nature. Yeah, of some, some of people don't words. like marijuana. Some people don't like guns. It, it's true. You know, they had more to do with guns than marijuana. Had yeah. actually nothing to do with well. Yeah, you had I, a lot I, of folks. Yeah, the friction big point was the marijuana, not the guns. Yeah. That's my feedback. Don't you feel like you're kind <clears throat> of in a stoked situation where someone's like, oh, yeah, bro. Everyone must get stoned, but what's the gun? Well, it's a stoner 63. Nom. What? <laughs> it's go. a conversation starter. It's Anyways, Shirt Locker, if you want to get cool stuff, check it out. JockoStore.com. Subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to JockoUnderground.com so we can be standing strong in the event of a, a total meltdown of our democratic society. Also with that, and you know that is true. Mm-hmm. That is true. Mm-hmm. But you get life advice every week from oh, Jocko. Yeah. Brad, tell me. Come on. Every week, life advice. You need life advice. Boom, ask Jocko every I, single week. Yeah, I answer what questions. Up? I answer all. The, there's like a special way to contact us if you're part of the of the Jocko Underground. Then you can submit questions. We're answering them. So get some of that YouTube. We got a YouTube channel. You can see the videos that I am the assistant director of. Therefore, they are awesome. <laughs> and even the ones that Echo just works <laughs> on by himself are okay. Yeah, thank you. Uh, psychological warfare. Flipside Canvas. Dakota Meyer. 
It's got cool stuff to hang on your wall. Dude, if we made a if we made a Ben Milligan t-shirt, what would it be? Oh, I mean, you'd sell a dozen. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. I wonder what could we do? What would it be? It'd have to, I mean, how pale am I? It'd have to be something <laughs> like to, to capture, you know. This is as tan as I am. Oh, if, okay. if this is in black and white, it only gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> if the shirt comes off, it's only worse. <laughs> so it'd have to be something tan. super white. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, just like just vague outline. <laughs> oh, do like do like a white t-shirt with like a white on white. <laughs> yeah, with like golden, like yeah. And then it could just say Mulligan. <laughs> We'll come up with something. That's good. Uh, You'd be surprised, man. People would be stoked to represent. They'd be like, oh, yeah. Perverts. Books by by water beneath the walls. Again, bruh, I know you like the title. I get it. (laughs) I get it. Next time you're going to title a book, just come and consult. Come and consult. You you got it. Come and consult. Hit me up. We'll spend a 15-minute conversation. There's a beautiful, a beautiful and amazing and powerful and strong context behind that title <laughs> that four people get. <laughs> and it's and and it is, as I said, this is to me the most important historical book about the seals. And I'm gonna also say for me, the most important historical book about special operations. And you write about everyone in there. The Rangers, the Special Forces, the Scouts and Raiders, it's all in there. It's just an outstanding book. So pick up that book, Buy Water Beneath the Walls. You know what? Do me a favor right now as you're listening. Write this down. Buy Water Beneath the Walls because there's no way you're going to remember that title. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. Hey, I've written a bunch of books too. Final Spin. That's, That's the novel that I wrote. Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. The Code. The Evaluations Protocols. Discipline Freedom Field Manual. Way of the Warrior Kid 1, 2, 3, and 4. Get those books for the kids that you know. Please, please do that. It will legitimately, guaranteed, make their lives better. It'll make them better into better human beings. Make them more capable for the world. And the world is not an easy place. Mikey and the Dragons. Get that for the little munchkins running around the house. About face, extreme ownership, dichotomy leadership. Check out those books as well. Uh, Echelon Front. If you need some help with leadership inside your organization, online training at extremeownership.com. This is not the only place to learn leadership, and leadership is not an inoculation that you get and now you're good to go. You got to train just like the gym. That's why we got extremeownership.com. So we can train you every single day. And you want to ask me some questions, go on there. I'm on there. I'm on a Zoom call talking to me. I'm five inches away from your head answering your questions. If you want to help service members, through an incredible organization, go to americasmightywarriors.org. It's Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee, helping in so many different ways. Uh, she's tremendous, and it's a tremendous organization. Don't forget about Horses and Heroes. Micah Fink, horses, heroesandhorses.com. Micah Fink, he's doing cool stuff on horses. Run it, r- riding horses through the wilderness. 41 days. Legitness. Um, we're on social media. We're right in there inside the algorithms. Don't get sucked into them. I'm at Jocko Willink. Echo's at Echo Charles. Ben is at B Milligan three on Instagram, and then Ben H Milligan on Twitter. What do you post on Instagram? Anything? Yeah, I, I post on there. I'll, I'll try and put on like a post a week. I'm not. Uh, I'm not super active on it. I don't. I'm, I'm not super good 
uh, but I, I'll if I'm um, usually I try and tie something back to you know uh, American history or something like that. I just I uh, was down at uh, the World War II Museum, um, which nice. is incredible. Um, there was a uh, right outside the World War II Museum. There's a statue of Anne Frank, and they just happened to position it uh, directly in front of a shell. Pocked uh, section of Utah Beach that they had brought back, and that seemed oh. like a wow, just an incredible like. Um, it just, I mean, it made the whole, the whole effort, the whole thing seem worthwhile. Like, just what do these guys do, <laughs> and what did they do it for? It's right here. Everything's right here. Awesome, yeah. cool stuff. So check out his Instagram. And uh, Ben, thanks once again for coming on. I uh, really Thank appreciate you, it. Appreciate it. This is fantastic. Appreciate what you've done for the teams, uh, not only through your service in the teams, but also for this book. And thanks to all the military personnel out there that are writing history as we speak by keeping us free around the world. To the police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all the first responders, thank you for what you are doing right now to keep us safe here at home. And once again, there are opportunities out there. But they're not gonna just, they're not gonna beat down your door. You gotta look for them. You gotta, there's an expression we used to have in the teams, look for work. Remember that expression? Look for work. So when you're a new guy and you're hitting a target, a training operation, and you don't really know what to do, so you're kind of standing there with your weapon at high port not doing anything, and some freaking platoon chief is going to go, hey, Willink, look for work. And that means you pick up your weapon and you go look for an angle to cover. Well, that's what, you, that's what the SEALs did. That's, that's where we came from. We came from a position where we were just out there looking for work. Don't do what everyone else is doing. First of all, don't just stand there and do nothing, but don't just do what someone else is doing. They're, it's already getting done. Look for the angle that's not being covered. Look for the job that no one else wants. Look for the job that is harder, that's more complex, that's cold and wet and miserable. The job that requires more effort than anybody, anything else, and more than anybody else is willing to put up with. That's where the opportunity is. And then go and get after it. And until next time, this is Ben Milligan and Echo and Jocko out.